Championship Sunday, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, inside the stadium, 91,000 cheering fans, 33 exit gates. Somewhere in the stadium, an assassin waits. Pan off it, Gary. Pan off it Nothing quick. Don't go right. back to that shot unless I tell you. Understand? Just stay off it. Move. Who will his target be? Charlton Heston, John Cassavetes, Martin Balsam, Bo Bridges, Marilyn Hassett, David Jansen, Jack Klugman, Walter Pidgeon, Jenna Rollins, Brock Peters, David Groh. 91,000 lives that will never be the same. Why do you take such pleasure in telling people we're not married? He's this guy. He's gonna kill me. Still nervous? That's right. We're still gonna wait, too. Just don't get itchy. What exactly did you see? I told you. A man with a rifle. You get your men into place ready to move, but it's no go till we get all the VIPs out. The VIPs, the probable targets. SWAT 6 to all SWAT units. The suspect is up, armed and at the north end of the parapet. We're coming up in the two-minute warning. You ought to have your people in place by then. When the two-minute whistle blows, it's your ball game. He's up! Two-minute warning. After that, sudden death. This is the motion picture you have heard about. This is the motion picture you have read about. Soon, you will be talking about the motion picture shock of the year. Two-minute warning. All right. Well, this is a big one. For five people out there, this is the reunion you've been waiting 17 years for. This is the 13th episode. This is our bar mitzvah. Oh, that's <laughs> how perfect. But if Today, I had we my, are all men. I know, and if I'd yeah. had my act together, this would have been the show where we did the two movies that I watched with my friends at my bar mitzvah. Alan, were you, you were at my bar mitzvah, weren't you? Absolutely. You remember? We went up to my bedroom while the grown-ups were downstairs in my house. And then you don't remember this, do you? I, I don't remember. I don't remember the details. You, do you, so you don't remember the two movies that I had rented. That I had my, I had my parents rent on sixteen millimeter with a projector, and then we sat no. there like imbeciles in my room, which was probably one hundred and fifty degrees with the lay it on me on. dollars with uh, Warren Beatty. <laughs> and, does that ring a bell, Alan? <laughs> now it does. Just dollar sign. Yeah, dollar, with the sign. Yeah, yeah, the S was the, like yeah. like. Bowling for dollars. And then, and you can maybe verify. We're styling for dollars with Walter Cronkite on SCTV. (laughs) And then the second feature, which you can probably, even with with your hazy memory, can remember that we didn't actually finish, um, and I've never seen all of, and I don't know that anyone has ever actually sat through this whole thing, was the original Casino Royale. God, brutality. That's best that we didn't make it through. I don't know. <laughs> no, one, no one's ever made it through. You can't. I know I had No a one whole, has. I had a whole catalog to look <clears throat> through for months before my bar mitzvah to pick out movies. And I think I had a price range that it couldn't be above. But there was still a bunch. I don't. How I settled on those two, I'll never know. Although I do think that dollars, although we'll find out at some point when we rewatch it, yeah. is a good movie. Casino Royale, I still don't. Even if we were going to do a show on it, I don't know if I'd be able to sit through it. No, no one has. We're not going to ever get there. So, All you right, know, I'm it's sorry. like I always said, like, uh, you know, Last House on the Left is supposedly based on Bergman's The Virgin Spring. Right. 
You know, no one who has seen one of those films has actually sat through the other. So we could never prove that. Although I will say and give a plug before I do my intro for UW Cinematheque, we did a Bergman series a couple of years ago. And as a sort of an adjacent screening to our Bergman series where we did show Virgin Spring, we did show Last House on the Left. So if people were in Madison, Wisconsin a couple of years right. ago and were in the mood to see both of those movies within the same week, we offered them both on the big screen. How do you like them apples? I like it, and uh, thanks for stepping on my shtick. It's all right. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, your, co- your collective right. knowledge. <laughs> I've been making I that have, joke for 30 listen, years. I don't have any yeah. evidence that anyone did watch both of them, and in right. fact... It was possible, yeah. I think I missed them both. And you know what? I might be wrong. Maybe we didn't show Last House on the Left. Oh boy! Well, our ombudsman right. Jim Healy will will correct me if I'm wrong. We haven't uh, we haven't introduced the show yet, so uh, this I know, is uh, right? yeah. seventy movies we saw in the seventies, episode thirteen. I'm Mike McPadden. I'm the author of uh, the books Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies in Madison, Wisconsin. In Madison, Wisconsin, I am Ben Reiser uh, of UW Madison uh, fame and not so much fortune. Uh, not so much fame either, really, but I do uh, <laughs> work at the Wisconsin Film Festival and UW Cinematheque. And as I mentioned in our last show, I'm a uh, former lead singer of Tracy Lord's Ex-Lovers. And among the many, many, many credits we'll have to uh, uh, um, announce for our guest, uh, uh, Alan. Alan was an original yeah. member, founding member. Oh, gee. There never was a Tracy Lord's Ex-Lovers without Alan Broadman. Alan, Alan of Tracy Lord's Lovers fame. Alan, do you remember the song that Mike sang on the last episode that was, I don't know if it was actually ever officially a Tracy Lord song. Did we ever it play was a that song? We performed it, it at, at your house. Oh, okay. Yes. Like we never performed birthday. it on stage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I lost my mind uh, about a girl that night, and I started screaming and acting like... Uh, on our Gigi Allen in the middle of your living room. So, Do we have that uh, on videotape? I think we have that on videotape. I think you do, yeah. <laughs> uh, joining us from the Garden State, what town are you in, sir? Montvale. Montvale. Introduce yourself, please. Alan Broadman from Montvale, New Jersey. <laughs> That's the only... Well, there was a name of the past, of course, Fischl Bocephus. Oh, it's Fischl Bocephus, dude. <laughs> Ben Reiser has made it happen. Ben Reiser is Frank Sinatra. This is the Martin and Lewis reunion at the end of the 1976 telethon. Fischl and I are going to stare at each other, cry, lovingly, uncomfortably lovingly, caress each other's cheeks for about 10 minutes, smoke cigarettes the entire time. Because now, Ben just said, as, as old Blue Eyes did, it's been long enough, I think. It's been, been long, been long enough. enough. It's been long enough. Honestly, there's always there's a there's an element of um, psychoanalysis and psychodrama that's always just percolating beneath the surface of this show, and if we're not careful, it's really gonna overflow. Uh, above it's certainly the surface. thick today. It's yeah. thick here. <laughs> I wanna. I don't understand this official Bocephus thing. This was a name you actually went by for oh. a period of time. 
Like a, oh well, so I was uh, I've contributed to Happy Land. Um, you were the oh, sergeant okay, at arms. Okay. Was your official I, I, I remember I had a self uh, kind of a self help. Uh, I remember uh, you had letters. Josephus. Yeah, were, people would write in. Someone said they had problem with uh, peanut allergies. I told them you know, <laughs> and they were allergic to bees. So I said, go rub yourself in peanut butter and honey and attack a bee's nest like G. Gordon Liddy would. So I had that. And Fischl Bocephus was my, um, yeah, my alter ego. Fischl was the Hebrew name of my brother Franklin, who's my dear brother who's passed away many years oh, now. No. Oh, no. Yes, yes. Wow. Oh, many oh, years. we got to yes. pull one out, man. Absolutely. And, uh, man. and Bocephus was Franklin's schizophrenic, legitimately schizophrenic alter ego. So that oh, was kind of a Based hank. on his love of Hank Williams Jr., Exactly. Country music, it, Southern rock. Yes, full-blown yeah. Confederate flag, giant 10-gallon hats. The, I mean, that, that part everything. I, that, that part I, I do remember, that that was Franklin's, that Franklin would sometimes mm. call himself that or whatever. I do remember that, that the Hank Williams Jr. stuff. Um, but yeah, I wasn't... Well, see, Alan uh, is my, as I was thinking about it today, is, is probably my oldest friend out of all of the sort of Whatever we are, not a rat pack. Whatever, whatever our sort of circle of horrible men uh, that I've known <laughs> my whole life. Um, Just I've, rats. I've known. No yeah, Just rats. <laughs> I've known Alan the longest. Alan and I went to PS one fifty two together, and we met. I don't know. We probably were in class together in like first or second grade or something. I don't know. Thir- third grade. Third grade. Third grade. Wow. And then, and then Alan and I went to junior high school. Andreas Huddy. Where we met up with the with the rest of our Rat Pack: uh, Chad Polari, Matt Shepko, Scott Kaplan, uh, blah blah blah. I'm, who am I forgetting? Yoon Pack. Yoon Pack. Um, that's about it, right? That's the basic. Uh, that's the yeah. That's, but then Mike, and then Mike, yes. I met in college. Uh, he right. came. He came to SUNY Purchase to hunt me down after hearing my name on the Howard Stern show. That's right. Um, I changed my. Uh, I was going to go to any other school but Purchase, but then I heard that. Yeah. And then so you must have met Alan through through me and through Tracy yes. Lord's ex lovers shows. I and will that tell kind you the shit. exact uh, night we met. Uh, it was. I don't have the date, but I could look it up and figure it out. But it was. We went to see Evil Dead Two. What a movie. And, and, <laughs> and Alan, and like Ben sort of said to me something like, you got to prepare yourself for this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Alan came out, you had a, you had broken your leg or you severely injured your leg on a motorcycle or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you got in the car and I fell in love with you. You just, somebody said something about what are you doing? What did you do today? And you said, look, try as you might, you will never put a bullet hole through my lifestyle. <laughs> And I was like, this guy's got to be my best friend. Alan always came out with both barrels ablaze, uh, as, they, yes. as they don't say, but they should say. Yes. Um, I was thinking, I was trying to like look at my life through a, uh, an atypically like non-narcissistic lens and where I wasn't the center of the universe. And in that, in that enlightened view of my life, I, I see Alan now as a huge influencer uh, in my life. But also, like, I, I see Alan and I as sort of like the twin poles of our, like, circle of friends. That, that Alan and I have been frenemies throughout much of our lives together as much as we were friends. Uh, and sometimes, like, I guess legit enemies. Not really, but, you know, we've gone no. years without talking. And uh, even though we were at each other's bar mitzvahs, we weren't at each other's weddings. But, you know, we've come and gone. And 
Uh, but I think it's because we both have these huge personalities and we both like, it's like usually the room is too much for the two of us. Cause we're, we, we sort of do some sh- similar shtick. It's like if we're both beating up on Chad verbally at the same time, <laughs> it's too much. And that's, right. that, that was the explosiveness of Tracy Lord's ex-lover. It was Very just me much, and yeah. Alan and then Chad and Chad was like miserable because he had nowhere to turn, you know, it was like torture for him. <laughs> and then Alan and I, uh. We moved in together in 1991. I changed my name to Selwyn Harris. Uh, started publishing a little uh, Xerox tampon called Happy Land. But let me just uh, ask you something. You yes. guys didn't go by those names in your private life, right? Those were your nom de plumes, right? For me, yes. But uh, many people yeah. referred to Mike no, as no, Selwyn. For years, I sure. was just Selwyn. Oh, yeah. really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Like, wow. And I'll say this. Initially, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. My first few attempts at like getting sober, I had to introduce myself as my name is Selwyn and I'm a, you know, what I am. Um, because that was just what I was known by at the time. So, yeah, but if you're at AA, doesn't, aren't you anonymous anyway? Couldn't you have gone back to your. Well, I was trying to keep the A oh, part I of that. I uh, oh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's fine. Uh, so, so uh, Alan uh, lived with Selwyn Harris, who was this famous like uh, criminal and pervert. And, uh, Made a mess of everything, especially Alan's bedroom when he wasn't home. Uh, <laughs> and we had some legendary screaming fights. We had a, a lovely, nervous young man that lived with us for a year, Ben Levitt. And I'm lo- I, I always say, like, I'm glad he was able to have, like, a normal functioning life after that experience of living with us for that year. Poor Ben Levitt. <laughs> to, really have, to have us as his two roommates. <laughs> Can you imagine what it I can't grasp no, it. No, no. Now, I, I will tell you, the last time we had any contact was in 2003. And, you know, I've always wondered, because this happens a lot in my life. Like, I, you know, you talk about big personalities. I have a big personality that's bad on top of everything. Um, but I it always alienate people at some point. And I don't know if there was something I did or something. And I just... I felt like you were getting into Buddhism, vegetarianism. By the way, Fisher Bocephus, if anybody remembers him from downtown Beirut and Happy Land, he is one-third the size he was in our glory days. I have absorbed all the weight that he lost <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, God bless you. You look gorgeous. Oh, um, thank you. You guys look great, too. I, 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 really, I really believe that. You look terrific. You. And... Uh, yeah, we just sort of, and I just sort of said, all right, well, you know, he's going one way, I'm going this way, I'm in Chicago, and uh, we left it at that. I will say, I am now married, I'm almost 10 years married. Mr. Congratulations. B. Thank you. And uh, I can call you Mr. B, because it's both Cephas and Broadman. Um, and my wife, like, I talk about you constantly, I quote you constantly, I'm talking about, I talk about uh, Franklin all the time, Tufo Bo. I mentioned Stephen. Is Stephen still with us? Absolutely, yes. Okay, great. Does he still have that Russian uh, mail order bread? Uh, he does, and Stephen actually just, I talked with him the other day. He called me to ask me for the spelling of a number that was something like 10 to the 171st power. <laughs> he, he needed, it was something like qual quarajinalillion. And so he's going strong with his interests and... And I just I, want to I say, I frequently retell the story of your encounter with Stephen at uh, Marine Park. Do you remember? The, do you know the story? You, uh, oh. you guys were like hanging out in Marine Park, which is a, in the Marine Park section of Brooklyn, and you said, "That's weird. Some guy is running the track in oh. like a full button-up shirt, 
dress pants and black shoes. Yes. And when he got close to you, he said, hi, Alan, and it was your brother, Steve. That, that, is, that is correct. I saw, that I used, there used to be a guy in Madison near where I worked uh, when I worked at Rayovac Battery Company uh, who used to run around on his lunch hour in like a full three-piece suit and like dress shoes, <laughs> but like exercise like that. That's a special Steven, kind of insanity. Stephen once ran 17 miles, and I said, well, how, how, how did that happen? How did it happen? And that's so long, because it's not like he was a runner or practicing for a marathon. Oh yeah. And I, I, he said, well, I just started running and wanted to see how far I could go. And, I, said, and yeah. I asked him, well, how is it that you stopped? And he said, well, by 17 miles, my shoes had worn through and my toes were bleeding. <laughs> And so he, he became hobbled. But other than that, he was just going to keep going. Um, I also once passively watched him do like the little hand, the little oh, squeezy hand weight thing 1,200 times. He's an amateur arm wrestler, Stephen. Wow. wow, wow yeah, wow. He, he's in, I've seen him at meets. Yeah. Um, he, he could oh, do 2,500 of those squeezes. Yeah. No, he he told us he was doing 1,200. And clearly that was yeah. the number. Yeah. That was the warm up. So that was it. Yeah, he was getting ready to work. He was getting ready to work the machine there. Uh, All right. But listen, so this is yeah. uh, 70 movies we saw in the 70s. So I just want to concentrate oh, yeah. on this reminder. particular episode yeah. in the Alan Broadman experience of the 1970s, which, Mike, you were not a part of. And I'm, I'm forever sad I was not. about that. I lived nearby. Imagine oh, yeah. if Mike had. Right. Yeah. How old were you when you moved out, uh, uh, moved from around the corner? Uh, did you know eight. that Mike lived around eight. the corner from me, and I didn't know him? I had I no like 21st idea. 21st in uh, Glenwood. No. Yeah. I only know him from o over Peck. Oh, no, over Bay Ridge. Street in Bay Ridge, oh. yeah. yeah. What? So wait, how well, old But Alan, before you get into this, what was you said the last communication you remembered with me? Oh, yes. I just want to say I, I have nothing but love for you. Oh, this listen is to this. this I mean, oh, this I is mean, it. I, it's the Jerry I, Lewis telephone. Yes, that's all. I don't. I don't feel that with the difficulties we had living together were your fault. I was a disastrous mess, dis un <laughs> unraveling, disintegrating on a daily basis, and so. <laughs> but you were too, and so oh, please, we came. Yeah. We came together, yeah. and uh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, some things you did irked me. You would. You would set your alarm clock so oh loud. Yeah. You would put it on on ten and tune it in between stations to static, <laughs> and you, you would set it at night. But you yeah. would never come home. Right, I was and out. So all night. You were out. You, right, but you set it the night before you went out, and so I would I'd come home stumbling at five in the morning, go to sleep, and then at five forty five, your alarm clock would wake me up. <laughs> and so one day I did go into your room. I don't know if you remember. I did destroy oh, it with that. I smashed it with a hammer. So that was the end of it. Yeah, you could make a case that I was the bad roommate. <laughs> no. um, and the Completely last thing, understandable. the yeah. last thing I remember in our interaction was it's a, it was me in a hallway of our second Park Slope apartment, screaming yeah. at the top of my lungs at you, "Fuck you, you fucking fuck," <laughs> and and I don't even know what I was meant or Who what knows? we were fighting I mean, about. That, that was typical. And Levitt was yeah. like, you know. In a, in a corner in his room, yes. trying to find solace somehow. Ho hovering like Voldemort's baby <laughs> self, um, curled up. Yes. So, All right, yes. now back to the 70s. Yes. All right, well, I, 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 I know what I want to say about Alan, but before I say what I want to say about Alan, I also want to just paint the picture for everyone of, the, of Alan, the, 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 the maverick, the influencer. Uh, we were in Brooklyn, New York, growing up in the 70s. We were 
Uh, we were both born in 66. Alan, when's your yes. birthday? Uh, in April. Your birthday's in April. Okay. Well, that, yeah. that, that I had that. April. I was trying to figure out why we saw a two-minute warning when we saw it. And uh, something, something is now triggered for me. But uh, Alan was the one of all of my friends who uh, he had the two older brothers, which was a, a rarity. I don't think do, do any of our other friends, they had some older sisters, but does Scott Kaplan have older brothers? Well, he had eight siblings. He had everything. Who I don't think I ever met a, a, a single one of them. I don't I remember. I saw a shadow of one once in a while would pass through. Right. And, and, and Jimmy Kaminsky was uh, older than us, but he wasn't related to anybody. <laughs> well, maybe right. by, by, by whatever. Anyway, so, but Alan had the two oldest brothers, but Alan also was the one of us who had a CB radio in his bedroom. So... For all for all the height of CB mania, that was Alan's house we would go to. Alan was years ahead of us. He had an original TRS-80 computer in his bedroom. Oh. Yes. Um, what other what other things did you have before? Oh, Alan's family had a Betamax. His father oh, got his father yes. got a Betamax right off the sh- as soon as it was available. Maybe he he had like a beta of the Betamax, um. and he had a Betamax. He had a Betamax camera. Oh, he did. Oh God, yeah, he had a camera oh, yes, and the recorder. Right. Yeah, there were some crazy tapes. What, I, that what I remember you telling me about that was he would uh, never use it except once a year. He would point it out the window and run the tape for eight hours because it was good for the machine. Yeah, he had a lot of theor- he had a lot of theories about <laughs> things that were good for machines. But there are also some amazing videotapes that I'm assuming were made with that camera. Uh, 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 the yes, and we can't even I'm go into that. Right? No, no. <laughs> uh, I, I would just it would, would it would yeah. I can't describe it. Right. No. And, and one other thing about your uh, about Big Daddy Bocephus. Yeah. Can you tell us about Mr. Johnson? This is a '70s story. Oh, my God. Mr. Johnson. Okay. Mr. Johnson was invented by my father as a way to keep me in check in terms of my bad behavior. He was, theoretically, he ran a school for bad behaved kids. And so it was like, Mr. Johnson was, you know, Alan, if you, I don't know, knock over the Captain Crunch Bowl again one more time, you're going to have to go live with Mr. Johnson. And so sometimes he would act out. He would pretend even to talk to Mr. Johnson on the telephone, kind of, you know, he, he would pick up, he would pretend, oh, yeah, come over now. And I'd be, no, 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 no. Finally, one time, I, I don't know, something, I did something, who knows what it was, so bad that he said, oh, you know what? I got to get Mr. Johnson to come over here right now. We got to get him here. And I'm screaming, no, no, no. I'm hanging on for dear life to my, to my bed, you know, to, to not be taken. And, and the bell rings. And I'm like, maybe, wait, maybe I know it's real. Maybe I think it's fake and I've a little kid's sensibility. You don't really know. But the bell rings and my dad, 100% serious, says, oh, Mr. Johnson's here. Let's go down and and let's uh, send you (laughs) off. And I get, he drags me down the stairs. I'm scared and crying. And I I go to the door. My father opens the door and there is a guy in a big, it looks like, Inspector Clouseau. It's a big, it's a giant <laughs> trench coat and a big beard and dark, dark sunglasses and a big hat. And it's, it's, um, and my father said, Oh, it's Mr. Johnson. And, but the, but the, but Inspector Clouseau starts to laugh 
and the, and the glass laughs so hard that the glasses kind of fall off his nose and the hat not and it's my brother it's franklin <laughs> i want to uh, retroactively call child protective services on big daddy bocephus when i hear the that amount story. of therapy i am in and have been in <laughs> for decades it's i mean it's like a bigger biggest household expense i have on my budget yeah right well, this brings me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to reel us in and get us to the, the matter at hand. Here. But <laughs> I was, oh, oh, uh, a it, movie. It occurred to me today that I think there have been three times in my life in a uh, that I've gone to a movie in a, in a movie theater and had this experience that I uh, that is akin to uh, in those Looney Tunes cartoons when a character gets hit in the face with a frying pan. And right. like then the frying pan comes off and their face is in the shape. It's all flattened in the shape of a frying pan. And they kind of walk around and the vibrations from the impact of the frying pan are like, you know, and yeah. it takes their ringing. Their ears are ringing and there's stars flying above their heads. And, and it, it takes a while, even in those Looney Tune cartoons, for them to get back to normal. So I think that's happened to me three times in the, in the movies. And if I go backwards in chronological order... Uh, the most recent time was not that recent at all, but when the original The Vanishing came out, mm-hmm. uh, Katie and I met at the Cinema Village. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about it other than the ad, or the or I saw like the first line of a review that called it Hitchcockian and blah blah. You know, I was like, okay, Hitchcockian, great. And that movie freaked me out. The movie ended. The credits were rolling. She got up to go use the restroom, and I couldn't move. I couldn't move. The, everyone else left. The lights came back on. She came back up from the restroom, had to, like, sort of pull me out of the seat, and I was just sort of like, huh? So that was the most recent time that happened to me. But there were two times that it happened to me in the 70s, and my partner in crime for both of those movies was Alan fucking Broadman. I think I know one of them. Now, 1978, Alan and I... Again, I saw a review of something in the Village Voice, and they said, oh, God, this is the greatest thing, and it's really scary. I'm like, okay, fine. So Alan and I, it, was, it feels like it was like a weekday, or, you know, I don't know why we weren't in school. I don't know what time of year it was, anything, but we, we, we made our way to the Nostrand Theater, and I was nervous for two reasons. One, because I heard this movie was going to be scary, and I was kind of like, oh, fuck. I mean, I wanted to. That was my relationship with horror movies, is I wanted to do it, but I knew I was going to be punished um, psychologically. Um, but then that's the other my relationship th- with sex in general. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then, and then the other thing was that it was rated R, and we weren't sure if we were going to get in because that was a thing. We it was nineteen seventy eight. We were like twelve or thirteen. Maybe, maybe the we nostril were was iffy. Yeah, it was a gamble. They wouldn't always let you in. Yeah. Sometimes. Oh, they they didn't. We had to ask somebody to take us in. Right. Do you have a memory? Because I feel like it was this yes. kindly black woman. Am I right about that? I thought it was an old elderly man. Oh, well, okay. Either thing I don't could know. be the case. I'm not sure, but I do remember we had to get escorted in. Somebody bought us a ticket, but I feel like once we got into the theater, and by the way, the movie was Halloween. Um, so we saw Halloween for the first time when we were 13 years old, tops. And I, the thing that happened to me after that movie was I had a piano lesson later that day. And I'm just like, after, the, you know, we, we spent most of the movie, like, literally, that's the, that's the one movie I remember, like, hiding under my seat. Like, literally, like, ducking down so I wasn't going to watch what was going on on the screen. But I remember going to this piano lesson, 
uh, and you uh, ultimately came to that same piano teacher with me, Alan, because we then hired her to sort of teach us how to be a band when we first started. Right. Uh, I don't even think it was Tracy Lords. It was like our high school band, Illegal Outpost some or something thing. like that. Yeah. Right. And she taught us how to play the Rolling Stones' um, Can't Always Get What You Want. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. Her name was Betty. But anyway, I sat down and I'd just seen Halloween and I'm like, it's all I could think or talk about was Halloween. And and she hadn't seen it. I think, you know, I don't think she ever saw a movie. But I insisted that all I wanted to do for that piano lesson was learn how to play the music from Halloween. And I, you know, there were no MP3s or anything. I just mem- remembered it from this one screening and sort of like spent the time figuring out how to go do, 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 do on the piano. Anyway, two years earlier was my first, as far as I can remember, sort of like, what the fuck did I just see and how will I ever make it through the rest of my life now? And that was uh, Alan and I, I'm, I'm sure your mom took us. And I thought maybe it was for your birthday, but it wasn't because this movie opened in November. And interestingly enough, in December, they they kept it in theaters but added... Alfred Hitchcock's family plot, which had originally come out in April earlier that year. And for a second, when Mike sent me some newspaper ads today, I thought we saw two-minute warning as a double feature with family plot in December. But that's not true. We might have gone to see family plot at the King's Plaza in April for we your did. birthday. Okay. We did see that, it. I, do, I totally remember that. And then I was like, wait, did we see them both together? But no, that's not the case. But then we did see, I'm pretty sure, I mean, maybe it wasn't King's Plaza, but I think it was. We saw two-minute warning at King's Plaza. And your mom, again, took us to the movies. Did your mom, was she like a movie person? Like, she took us to these movies, but I had no sense that she had any interest. I don't think she had any interest at all. She took me to see Jaws. She had no interest in Jaws, that's for sure. And I kind of, frankly, after watching Two Minute Warning, what the fuck was a 10-year-old doing at that movie was the first thing <laughs> yeah. that, that came into my mind. This is not no, for 10-year-olds. In my whole history of seeing movies at home and in movies all through my life and seeing inappropriate films and convincing my parents to let me see my first rated R film, which was Blazing Saddles, and they was like, fine, okay, go do it, all that stuff, um, and, and, and fighting with them because they wouldn't let me go see Dawn of the Dead because that was rated X and uh, that was like a step too far. And so I would I would go to movie theaters that had like multiple screens and I would stand outside the auditorium that had Dawn of the Dead and just listen to the movie. <laughs> I remember doing that more than once. So the first <laughs> couple times that I saw Dawn of the Dead, I didn't see it. I just heard it from the lobby. But... I, nobody raised a finger to say, oh, no, no, I don't think two-minute warnings. I don't think anybody knew what the fuck it was. I don't even think we knew what it was. I don't no, think it also any- just looked like any one of those all-star disaster movies. Right, and I had seen yeah. Earthquake several times right. in the theater before then, and um, I had seen Towering Inferno with my grandparents, but they did pull me out of that movie a half an hour into it. They are like, no, no, fuck this. Um, but I'd seen Earthquake a couple times, um, incense around. Incense around. Yes, totally incense right, around. Yes. But um, so, Alan, do you remember the movie affecting you in the way that I feel like it affected me? Well, Halloween, yes. Two minute warning, no. I think maybe though that means that two minute warning was so deeply disturbing that it's just been <laughs> completely Sparing. erased from my psyche. Because I remember leaving that Halloween screening. Yeah. It was the first time we walked out into daylight. It yeah. was we were sort of in the a matinee. Yeah, and it, I, it was the most viscerally I've ever been impacted by a movie. I was physically shaking when we walked out into the bright light of, uh, in front of the Nostrum. Right. 
two minute warning though yeah two minute warning a- it wasn't so much that it was terrifying although i think it was during the movie i think once the you know I mean, the movie starts with somebody getting picked off by a sniper yeah and i think it just puts you on edge from there because you're like well anyone could bite it in this movie plus charlton heston was the star but that was no help because basically every movie i knew charlton heston from either ended with an apocalypse where he was the only person left alive or he right. was dead like uh, yeah. spoiler alerts for everything you're about to hear if you haven't seen any of these movies don't listen to this podcast yet but uh you know he's dead at the end of omega man he's being carried off at the end of soylent green those were my two movies uh, you know all right. planet of the apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Jesus Christ, you know. So seeing Heston as the star of this movie didn't fill me with anything other than dread because I'm like, well, an earthquake, even earthquake, the fucker dies at the end of it. He gets carried <laughs> off into the sewer with his with his wife. He gives up his beautiful mistress for stupid Ava Gardner, and they go floating off down down the <laughs> toilet together. Uh, so I'm like, well, Heston could easily buy it in this fucking movie, and uh, I didn't know John Cassavetes from a hole in the wall. Uh, but anyway, but Mike. You yes. never saw this movie until this week. Never saw it. Now, you said you were going to bring a, a special it. guest star. I am. Rachel. Mr. Bocephus, my wife is coming. Here she is. She heard me. All right. <laughs> Sorry. She said that's a terrible way to yell for someone. Uh, so, <laughs> I had a reaction to this movie, and I'll say the last movie I reacted to like this was Mother from 2017, oh. the Jennifer Lawrence movie, which... I was levitating in the theater and trying not to speak in tongues. I was so flipped out by it. Uh, So (laughs) the beautiful and illustrious Rachel McPadden is now going to describe the experience of being in the other room while I watched the two-minute warning. The first thing I said as soon as you were done was, did you go back to 42nd Street? (laughs) Because it was like a fully immersive VR experience (laughs) where... (laughs) Uh, you were screaming the entire time at the screen. I walked in pretty much unnoticed at one point and closed all the windows uh, so that the neighbors weren't disturbed. You were screaming uh, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and and don't, don't go, get out of there, get out of there. And, um, and just like screaming like you were on a roller coaster at a certain point. Um, and it's funnier that I only saw about 15 seconds of the movie, so I have no idea what you were reacting to at all. But it was constant. And you would be furiously writing notes. Like, you'd scream something and then furiously write a <laughs> note down on a page that you were worried that, like, the notepad was going to fly out of your arms or something. Yeah. I had no, no consciousness that I was doing this. Part. Yeah, it was completely insane. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Wonderful. All right. Wonderful. Nice to hear your voice. Get a witness for and, the prosecution. Uh, a little side note. Now, now, Alan, I know you don't remember this, but you had an experience like that when we rented a movie called Deadbeat at Dawn, which was this super low-budget biker movie. It's become like this cult classic made in Ohio. And it's about these bikers <laughs> that are going to pull off this heist. And they, it's like they're going to uh, knock over a, you know, a Brinks truck. And it turns out, so, so they pull it. It's really violent, really gory, really low budget, very creatively shot and everything. So they pull this off, and it's like it's like 50 guys, and they split $100,000 or something. Like, it's, it's such a low payoff. And you were so absorbed in the reality of Deadbeat at Dawn, like nothing <laughs> I've ever seen. And I said to them, I was like, it's like two grand each. What are they going to do? So they cut to the clubhouse, 
and there's a stripper and there's a band playing and without moving your eyes off the TV you said they're gonna buy themselves a night to remember (laughs) (laughs) I I remember the title of the movie and and what you're saying about it I'm you know my yeah no I my alcohol and drug addled memory is so fragmented at this point that it's just <laughs> bits and pieces. You know, if I don't uh, pick up in the next few weeks, I'll, I'll have 21 years in September. So. Wonderful. Congratulations. Um, so, Mike, so, yeah, talk, talk about you're the, you're the newcomer to this movie. Talk yeah. about it a little bit. So, um, I was riveted from the opening shots of the football stadium. By the way, I was riveted yeah. from the very first title card, which is like Charlton Heston and John Cassavetes. I'm like, yeah. every movie should open with that title card. Exactly. Those two guys. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and you, you're in. Yeah. And you have the great uh, Charles Fox score, yeah. which is at once anthemic and serene. It's got uh, that trumpet, which forever, yeah. it's like the, that fanfare, which forever will signal to me someone's going to get sniped in this movie. <laughs> it's like anytime <laughs> oh, I hear a trumpet point. in a movie, I'm like, okay, wow. someone's about to die. And I thought it really, the, and, and the music does throughout. I mean, there's a couple of times it veers into like cop show music. And even well, that was very effective. But, you know, it's what I realized is, is that the killer, as basically unnamed as he is, that's his theme. Every time he's wandering around, you get that sort of synthy, yeah, like cop show yeah. kind of stuff, which is, yeah. which he's got his own style of music that the rest of the movie doesn't have at all. Right. And um, no, I, I was completely absorbed in it. I, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. I ordered the Blu-ray while I was watching it on my phone. Um, now, this is something I'm going to be tout- touting forever. A friend of mine, Brian Connolly who wrote the great book, uh, Destroy All Movies, The Complete History of Punks in Film. He just started a podcast called The World is Wrong. And it's about movies that were panned or, or, or generally thought of as not good mm-hmm. that he uh, has people on to champion. And I'm going to take up the mantle for oh, that's two fantastic. minute warning. Good, good for you. Because this is a masterpiece. The direction, everything about it is flawless. It was heaven. Just the, what, the, the, the litany of all stars as they come out took me right back to the best of being a kid, which was watching movies so I could ignore the misery of real life. Um, The violence is so shocking. It's so electrifying, the suspense. But then the payoff, and there are things in this that I've never seen in any other movie. And, um, you know, we'll get there. We'll talk about key scenes in a bit, but I I couldn't love it more. Like a POV of someone eating a baby Ruth bar? Would that be one of the things that that you've never seen in a movie before? Never, except for Caddyshack. They ripped it off and then he tossed it in the pool. Now this this came at this. Actually, what that reminded me of uh, was um, uh, Butterfinger, whatever his name is, in Bad News Bears, which I think comes first. Right, that was before this. Seventy six. Same year. Same year. Yeah. So that so. was like the year for like synchronicity. That was the year for like eating your candy bar through the wrapper, or at least tearing off the wrapper with your teeth. <laughs> I've never done that. Have you guys ever like torn off the candy wrapper never. with your teeth? I don't think so. Never. But I was a very fat little boy, so I probably. Weren't you waiting for him to pull out like a picnic lunch in that scene? I thought he was going to take out a picnic basket and a two liter diet coke. <laughs> Because he had all these seams in his coat, secret pockets. He had the whole right. rifle in yeah, there. You, you know, this movie is based on a book, which I had the paperback of. Because that's the, as soon as we saw the movie, I think I went to the bookstore at King's Plaza and bought the book. 
And I looked for it in my house. I couldn't find it, but I, I was able to pull a sample off of Amazon. And one of the first things that happens in the book is it, it sort of starts later in the story than the movie does. But uh, one of the guys in the TV truck sees this guy up on the roof. And in the book, he doesn't just have candy bar. He does have all kinds of stuff. He has like Cheerios. Oh, and it's really gross. He's eating hot dog. He's he's eating uncooked hot dogs, um, and he's like Ugh. sucking. He's sucking the meat out of the like casing of the hot dog, and then chewing oh. on the casing. Yeah. Oh, that's worse than the sniping. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> that's just. But I, before we that. get into the sort of the the sort of you know step by step of the movie, I I, I it's funny. In the whole lead up to this, I forgot. I, rem- I, I remembered this part of it, that, that maybe four years ago, we had the director of Two Minute Warning come to the Wisconsin Film Festival, Larry Pierce. And we showed two of his movies, not Two Minute Warning. We showed The Incident, which I know is a movie that Gilbert Gottfried talks about Love a lot. It. And is a fantastic movie and actually has some similarities to this. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Alan, but it's from the 60s. Oh. And it's these... It's these two thugs who sort of hold this whole subway car full of people hostage one night. And it's also very sort of like weirdly all-star because one of the people that's being held hostage on this subway car is Ed McMahon in like a totally straight kind (laughs) of role. Like he's just like a a New Yorker with his wife uh, at the end of a long night. Um, So we showed the incident. But it's Martin Sheen and Tony Massanti are the thugs. Yeah. And uh, Bo Bridges from... uh Two-minute Two warning. warning is the uh, soldier who has his arm in a cast, so he I can't really that. do anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we it's should... It's the definition of a pressure cooker, that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and and I got to... And on the, there's now a Blu-ray of the incident, a British Blu-ray, and one of the bonus features of the Blu-ray is this interview that Jim Healy did with Larry All Pierce right. after the movie, like a whole Q&A where they talk about that. And then we showed this other Larry Pierce movie called One Potato, Two Potato, which I didn't get to see, but I also hear is fantastic. Um, but, so I saw Larry Pierce uh, one night during the festival. Uh, Jim knew I was a big Two Minute Warning fan, so he got Larry to come down from his hotel room and hang out at this little reception we were having. Because Larry's an older guy, and he was there with his wife, and he wasn't really out to like spend all night drinking. But Jim brought him down just so I could say hi to him, and I got to say, Larry, I saw Two Minute Warning when I was 10 years old, and it changed my life forever, and it's the greatest thing ever. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can't believe you saw it. He goes, you're not talking about the TV version, are you? And I said, no, 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 no. And he said, yeah, because that's not mine. That shit's not mine. <laughs> that's got nothing to do with me. Mike, do you know this whole TV version story? I I, uh, yeah, just in doing research on this, I, I learned about it. But yeah, do you want to talk about it? Or? Well, the movie. I mean, you know, uh, you know. I don't know. It's not that. It, it's not that it really is like so unbelievably violent. But the whole concept that there is no backstory. You don't really know why this guy is doing whatever he's doing. There's no, you know, there's no sort of motivation that's discussed. And that's apparently was so disturbing. And it is disturbing, but to the idea, NBC thought, we can't show this as is, and they convinced Universal to let them uh, shoot an additional 45 minutes of a completely other plot to sort of shoehorn into this, and they pulled out 45 minutes from the original and threw in this whole art gallery heist subplot where this sniper... In this TV version, the sniper is just a distraction from the main thing, which is these guys are ripping off some kind of art gallery. Yeah, so my son, Zach, was watched a little bit of the movie behind my shoulder. He's 22 years old, and I I mentioned that to him. I said, you know, they, they had to do this made-for-broadcast TV because it was so disturbing. He said, 
So you can only kill people if there's money at stake. Otherwise, wow. it's disturbing. <laughs> and I really didn't, really didn't have an answer for that. Wow. That's a very Bocephian observation, I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. They were going to take that money and they were going to have a night to remember. That's right. <laughs> you, know, you know, Ben, Ben when, when you mentioned, this is one of the things that's so enjoyable about listening to your, your show, for me, is that it's not just about reliving some of the things in the movie. But it's just, it triggers memories and, and, yeah, and right. feelings of the past. And so when you just mentioned the book, so I remember now going to the bookstore, getting the book, and at some point you lent me the book. Because oh, I, okay. I, I remember reading the book. <laughs> I remember the cover of the book. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, what a strange feeling. How many years ago is this for us? Um, for, uh, 40, 40, over 40. 44? Yeah. 44 yeah, years nearly ago. 45 years, yeah. It's still here. Still suffering. <laughs> I tell you, Mike. I so love. We've been talking I, a lot. I do love the fact that Go you ahead. are just now seeing Two Minute Warning for the first. It's so great that there are still so many movies out there for all of us to discover for the first time, and it's such a thrill that you got to see that this week and that you loved it. I'm, I'm just. It's my my work is done. Yeah. I, I feel like I can retire now. <laughs> good, good. We've been talking a lot around the movie. I think we should. Uh, Go into the movie. Let's read the New York Times review. Oh, good. And so I'll read this, and you guys interrupt to yell at the review and correct it as we go. All right. What's the name of this ass bowl that wrote this? Richard Eater. Eater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Two-minute warning about a mad sniper in a crowded football stadium has the suspense, the compassion, the human vision, and the individual nuance one would expect in a movie about a foot stepping on an anthill. But why, you may ask, would anybody make a movie about a foot stepping on an anthill? Exactly. First of all, That's he's right. about to rattle off a whole bunch of disaster movie titles, and I will, I will go to the Supreme Court to argue the case that this is a more humane and human film than all of those other disaster movies combined. You put this oh, up against Towering completely. Inferno... And you talk about which one is exploitation and which one is art. It's not even, it's, I don't even waste my time. It's ridiculous. Let alone the swarm. Well, <laughs> yeah. but, the, but there, is a, there is a big difference for me. You know, you, the two of you guys are so versed in just the language of film. You know, you, when, and you, it comes through in the show. You, you understand it. You've done it yourselves. I don't have anything. You know, I, I don't know the, the method part You of know it. So what I'm you just, like. I know what I like, and I'm just I'm just keeping up with dialogue to see if I can stick stay with the plot, and I'm yeah. having an emotional experience. And I'll yeah. I'll tell you a, a difference between this movie and let's say Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. So Poseidon Adventure, you know, has I would four or five characters that how could you not love them? You would literally fall in love with them. I mean the. The, the heavy lady who swims in the thing. To Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters. Yeah. Right. Got I mean, a lot know, of guts, if lady. If you're not gushing with love for that swim, yes. you're not, you don't have a heart. Um, and so there's four other. Roddy McDowell also comes to mind in that movie. I had a hard time finding anybody I actually liked. What are you talking about? When Jack Klugman yelled at the priest because he sat on his coat, you didn't <laughs> fall in love with Klugman at that moment? Or well, when he makes out with that Asian hooker, whoever that is well, that he's having lunch well, uh, with? Well, but what about when he grabs that woman's breast in the classiest restaurant in Los, yeah. restaurant in Los Angeles? <laughs> 
You know, I just that's I, a I really keen observation. I hadn't I, you know, thought of that. I, there was no yeah. one likable, and it's Who not that, we wrote for here. Yeah, I mean, we just we want the cops to stop the killer because he's in a stadium full of ninety thousand people. Well, because Bo Bridges yeah. is smacking his kid around. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, Martin Balsam is you know just mad at the groundskeeper for for letting the yeah. guy up there. It's like I was trying to find who can I like here. Well, and I'll say I want to say two things about that, Alan. First of all, I think that this movie is really only paying lip service to the whole. Uh, disaster movie formula. And so you have these sort of made-for-TV stars. Uh, fucking David Jansen. That, that, that's the one guy. Right. That's the exception to the rule where I'm like, okay, I, this is one of those movies where it feels like everyone's picking up a paycheck, but the only one who really seems like he was drunk on set for the whole time <laughs> is Jansen. I mean, he seems uh, fucking plastic. The method. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that whole subplot with him and Jenna Rollins, uh, that's like the weakest, most soap opery. Uh, most towering inferno kind of disaster movie relationship in this movie. But I really think that Larry Pierce is just sort of saying, okay, this is how we got the money to make this movie I want to make. We're calling it a disaster movie. We're going to put these people here. But that he's not interested in that shit at all. And so there's none of that crap. We don't, you know, they, he spends the least right. amount of time trying to get you to care about these characters, the randomness, and also the amount of red herrings that he throws at you. You know, you spend five minutes in that hotel room with the quarterback at the beginning, and he turns out to have nothing to fucking do with this movie. And so they're, he's just setting you up to, to, to say, okay, oh, maybe that's the one who's going to get killed. Oh, they're going to get killed for sure and then you know it is completely random and it's and i think it's a real profound statement about the randomness of this kind of mass violence and um right uh, well the, there's an honesty to it certainly yes, that's right. that you don't get in the smarm smarmy sweetness of some other yeah. things where they're just this artificially building up things but it's a different kind of experience to take it in yeah but you make a good point about how unlikable these people are and when i was watching it this week i thought you know if nbc had had any brains they wouldn't have wasted all their money doing that art heist subplot they would have shot five minutes worth of something at the beginning and changed the whole narrative of this movie to be more of a stephen king thing where there's some virus in the air that only attacks like white guys in their 40s and 50s and turns them into these aggressive homicidal assholes because it's not just the killer it's every guy in this fucking movie is so wound tight they're they're constantly at each other's throats i mean you know obviously there's heston and there's cassavetes and stuff but let's look at the fucking hat vendor who's trying to sell hats to Bo bridges he's shoving those fucking hats on their heads like there's no (laughs) did you recognize him yes it's robert ginty the exterminator the exterminator baby yeah and he's exterminating those fucking hats. That's right. These, these guys hats. are not just at odds with each other in some mano a mano stuff, but they're also all over each other's girlfriends. Oh yeah. Every That's yeah. You, yeah. you sit down next to a couple, and all of us, Rhoda's Rhoda's husband Joe. is hitting Joe on. From Rhoda. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's hitting on this woman he just met ten seconds ago, and the boyfriend's right over there. David Grove. Um, well, now as I watched it this week and really started listening to some dialogue that I never had before. It turns out that the, that that guy was supposed to bring that woman's roommate to this game, and the roommate backed out oh. at the last second, and she volunteered to she's fill a in. Seat she's not really okay. with she's that guy. Seat. But so he was just a little jealous. He was triggered. But the thing yeah. that I couldn't wrap my head around after looking at the newspaper ad, which has all of the cast members across the bottom, as was the de rigueur of the day, but uh, instead of their 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 actor names, they have their, their character names. And not even their names, but their types. And that woman that's in between David Groh and the, what's that actor's name? I don't know. He... But but the, he's like, he didn't go on to much no. else. But yeah, he was a New York stage. But she's actor, yeah. identified in the poster as the co-ed. 
Like, did you did it register what? to you that she's a co-ed and that uh, David Grow is an intern? I mean, they both the look intern, like they're in their yeah. late thirties, early forties. I'm not sure well, what. The- well, she did. She did deliver that line. I knew you were a doctor because you've got clean hands and dirty shoes. Yeah, yeah. Which, is which, a I, which I'm still line. trying to figure yeah, out yeah, what yeah. that means. <laughs> I don't know what that. But means. I want to say, was this not your guys' experience of adult men in the seventies? Yeah. Just hyped up, smoking cigarettes, drunk, coughing out of their fucking minds, hostile, broken. <laughs> I mean, this this was this was the world of certainly the type of adults we grew up with in Brooklyn, or I did. Um, you know, not except for like my hippie uncles and stuff who were cool. But like when I was in Catholic school, everybody's dad was just like you know the just the the throbbing vein in the forehead, like you know. White knuckles on the steering wheel, because they worked at like plants and shit, you know. Right. It's definitely and like a guy's ear that. would get sliced off yeah. in the course of a day, and they would just <laughs> right. be like but, sitting in a room in the dark smoking a cigarette. Yeah, like, it's, it's, but, it's true. But one Ed, of the one yeah. of the lines. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I'll just I'll relate an anecdote related to to you, Ben. Maybe you'll remember this. So there's a line in the movie when the drunk guy behind uh, David Jansen reaches in. How about a drink, baby? This is to the right, the girlfriend yeah. of, of him, which I thought this again a little unusual behavior, but that immediately reminded me, Ben, that those things did happen. Do you remember being online with me early in the morning at about seven or eight a.m. for a Pier Forty Second Street Pier concert when someone on the line offered us moonshine, yes. which we drank. Yes. The, the, the guy had a gallon jug, which we thought was water of this clear oh, liquid and, and it was a summer so it was hot so you would bring a gallon glass right, jug right. of water I think we were either seeing split ends yeah. or squeeze or something yeah yeah and he, he just said hey kids I literally I took a drink out of this a swig out of this gallon jug and hit the pavement yeah. I, right. it was like but, drinking isopropyl alcohol but the truth yeah. is waiting in that line all day you had two choices drink that guy's moonshine or drink the <laughs> Um, um, uh, the fire hydrant water because people would unscrew the fire hydrants oh, yeah, and you'd yeah. be drinking that shit and you'd drink that all day and then you'd throw up for the two hours before the concert and then during the concert because <laughs> the, the fucking fire hydrant water was way worse than any moonshine you could be drinking. Oh. But by the way, that drunk guy in this movie, when he pulls out his stash, it looks like it's his pee bottle. It literally looks like a fucking alcoholic yeah. urine is in that thing. Yeah, that's it's diseased it's brown it's urine. Disgusting. Yeah. 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 Um, All right, back wait, wait, to the wait. review. But I'm gonna, I All was right. going to say, it's this weird paradox in that every single mano a mano confrontation in this movie is at 11. Like um, the thing between Martin Balsam and, and Brock Peters when he's like, did you lock that door? What are you trying to say? Of course I locked that door. And they're all like revved up yeah. each other. And when um, when Heston goes into the TV truck and he's looking at the thing and one of the TV guys goes, get out of there. Hey, we're trying to run a thing yeah. there. And Heston goes, you know, he gets right in his face. It's all that shit. But on the other hand, I want to say, that for as over-the-top and hammy and intense as Heston and Cassavetes usually are, they're both kind of like mellow totally. in this movie, yeah. which is great. Totally. I mean, it's re- they're more yeah. realistic than they usually are. They both underplay it. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Had some strange, that had some strange impacts on me re-watching it because one thing was that Heston's so kind of chill that when yeah. he's first responding to the reality there's a sniper there, 
you don't get much affect out of him. It's not like he's too concerned. Right. It's almost as if they told him like the concession stand ran out of mustard, and him and Martin Balsam, <laughs> him and Martin Balsam start talking. Well, it's you know like how they, what they're going to do, and it's right. like well, well maybe we can go to the basement and they'll have more mustard. It's right. a sniper. Well, yeah. Well, that struck me too. Um, is that they find that sniper? They spot him pretty early on in the movie. Yeah. And I was like, why aren't they panicking and running around and calling in helicopters? And then I realized that well, this is the magic of the movies. It's like what we're watching is is those lightning fast decisions that real cops would have to make, but slowed down so that we can wa- enjoy all the details. We can really be emotionally involved and let it sink in. So that's my that was my take on that. Yeah, that's interesting. I also you know I, I wound up watching um, at least half of Towering Inferno today just because I was like, oh, I should do this for the podcast and. And, you know, I'm so used to the SCTV parody of Towering yes. Inferno with that heavy water um, that it took me a long time <laughs> to realize, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Charlton Heston isn't actually in the Towering Inferno. He's just in the SCTV parody. Of <laughs> That's such a good point. Yeah. I did not Slap know that. His neck. I thought Slap he really neck. was in it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. no, it's only Steve There's McQueen so many... and Paul Newman. There are so many SCTV moments, though, in this in this oh, yeah. movie for me so um, I don't know if you guys caught when the groundskeeper falls off the, the ladder Rock Peters and his head is effectively smashed to bits brains yeah. of, with yeah. 50 feet and yeah. they show you a slow motion shot of the Doberman's paw on his touching, head the greatest t- shot in the touching his yeah. touching yeah. his head and it's yeah. a very lovingly fake, caressing it is a fake very fake Doberman Pinscher's paw <laughs> oh is it oh I didn't know oh yes that is no real dog's paw that is <laughs> that is one step up from an SCTV you know mannequin that they would throw around yeah it's what's um, it's triumph the insult comic dog taking it that dog yeah, is either yeah. taking yes. his temperature the way your mom would do yeah. like oh like yeah. do you have a fever or it's like yeah. just comforting him or whatever yeah he's just sort of thing. caressing him yeah. and i don't want to jump around i mean of course yeah no we can jump just, yeah. i mean but the, the 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 biggest sctv moment for me is the towards the almost last shot of the movie is when they're lowering the sniper on that gurney you know yeah. his dead body and this gurney smashes into the side of the wall like five times. It's practically <laughs> his body practically tips out of the out of this gurney. I mean, I'm thinking, real? Could you lower it a little more gently? It's a dead body. <laughs> a little more respect. Um, so I was really getting impacted here by these things. Yeah. You were worried but about that. Side the, you note were about, about SCTV. The, yeah, go ahead. Uh, about this is a long time ago at this point. Uh, 20 years ago, my friend Aaron, with whom I do uh, the Crackpot Cinema podcast, was uh, he was a stand-up comic in L.A. at the time, and he was at a, at a bar where he was doing comedy. So, I mean, Joe Flaherty came in, and he said, I can never, like, he's like, I, just, I couldn't resist. I had to go up and talk to him. So he talked to him, and this was like the era when everything was coming out on DVD for the first time. And he said, when can we expect the DVDs? And Flaherty's like, oh, never, never. It'll never come out. He goes, we, we didn't pay for any music rights we did the Towering Inferno. He said specifically, we just went out and bought the soundtrack album and just threw it on the show. <laughs> but that has since been rectified by the heroes at Shout Factory. You can get all the SCTV episodes. Are they on DVD? So, yeah, okay. the entire series. But are they and yeah. but are they in their original formats? Like the half-hour yeah. episodes or the half-hour episodes yes. and the 90-minute NBCs? Yes. Okay. 
there's the the NBC years and then even the Cinemax years it goes on. Yeah, to, now so. the Cinemax years I never saw at the time, and I've recently caught up to a, some of them on um, YouTube. And wow, we there were some. They took some deep dives in those Cinemax years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've well, internalized so much SCTV that I almost wonder if sometimes maybe I'm. It's really that I'm bringing the SCTV to what I'm seeing. So right. another scene from this movie that I, I jotted down when the guy has the heart attack. And he screams oh and clutches yeah. his chest and the popcorn fly. I mean, how much do you pay that stump man to tumble on concrete steps? The guy rolled down <laughs> 10 flights of steps. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we're still making our way through this New York Times review, but, but in, 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 in one sentence. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. In preempting some shit, I want to say that the craftsmanship in this movie is fantastic. That stunt is amazing. And I feel like this movie is second to none in the way it gives you the illusion of you're actually at a real football game and this they're all in the real crowd. Totally. The, one of the great, I think this, this scene rivals anything in Roma. You know, there's all those like fancy mm-hmm. yeah, widescreen yeah. shots of a riot yeah. taking place through Roma. Yeah. This scene where Bo Bridges is running through the empty hallway to try to get back to his family and all of a sudden the crowd comes out. That's real. I mean, there's no faking that yeah. shit. That was, yeah, no, that was that was astonishing. That was heart stopping. If, so. if they made this movie today, all those crowds and their behavior would all be computer graphics. And there, yeah. there, Wes, one thing that was so striking to me: there is nothing like the realism of a yeah. mob of the mobs of people. I mean, it really is visceral when they're smashing into each right. other and people are being trampled. That is not, I mean, it's Even powerful. before right. it becomes violent, the discomfort of being in a crowded football stadium mm-hmm. is clear. Yeah. And why you have to be drunk to, to endure that. Nervous. I actually can't think of another movie that takes place at a major sporting event where like every time they cut to the crowd and the actors in the crowd, I'm like, oh, this is, you can see that they had 10 people around them. And it's, right. but I never get that in this movie. Even they're like, never. you know, you sort of, you know, that's not, but you're like, wow, they hired. Well, the only thing that goes through my head a lot in this movie is, well, they hired a shit ton of extras. They got a lot of fucking people on yeah. set this day. You know, and it's all through the whole yeah. goddamn movie. Yeah. Okay, hey, so. I know you're going to read this. <laughs> is, it, is that the thing at the, at, in L.A.? Is it, is it not tailgating, but people just have picnics on the grass outside yeah. the stadium? Oh, okay. That's oh, nice. I don't know. Oh. Alan, any Back idea? Then, you're yeah. a sporting I, I, You know, I, I'm really not. That's not me. I, I didn't know what those people were doing out there. Um, <laughs> I, the Bo Bridges family had a very, like, elegant yes. picnic set. I was like, what do they do with that? Right. Did they have to lug it back to the car? Especially since, as we're told five minutes later, daddy's out of work. Slap. That's right. Slap. Slap. Slaps the kid in the face. I, actually, Bo Bridges' wife was the one likable character to me. She was. She was she trying to hold. Yeah. She's trying to hold the yeah. family together, and she's yeah. a little pissed off that her husband's watching girls with the binoculars outside. And he was a real dick. He really yeah. was. He was sort of. Yeah. He was insufferable. At, I mean, right down yeah. to right down to leaving your wife and kids leaving in the stadium seats once yeah. you know that there's a sniper there, honey. You yeah. stay here. I'll take yeah. care of it. Yeah. But he gets his because that fucking Magnum Force police squad, they yes. won't say a fucking thing to him, and yes. then they beat the no. shit out of him. They arrest him. For what? Why do they this need was, to so detain was, him? That this was, was the, a note I made. I loved uh, when Cassavetes grabs that hippie off of like, the platform <laughs> and then takes him in the jaw and tunes him up. Oh, yeah. Oh. Loved it. Well, that I like when he pulls him down. He smashes that yeah. guy into the fucking seats, man. Wow. Oh, my God. And then, I mean, that tuning up is fantastic. That and full then, speed knee of the groin. 
Oh. And then I loved how scary the Magnum Force cops were. How yeah. scary the cops were. So I my note was this is like having Dirty Harry and Magnum Force in the same movie. Yeah, on the same side. <laughs> we got both extremes of the LAPD. Right. Yeah. That that was an incredibly disturbing scene. When the camera is panning around that circle of cops yeah, around him. Yeah, he's asking him, they're just staring. They won't even answer his question. No. It, it was tr- absolutely. I fought Magnum Force the moment I saw it, uh, yeah. that, which is the basement scene when he finds out that <laughs> yeah. they, he's yeah. killed uh, Charlie Taylor, whatever they yeah. Okay, the, let's the, hear some more from Richard Eder. Eder, okay. Uh, warning. Okay, quote, warning, unquote, which opened yesterday. Oh, that's the title. Sorry. Warning, which opened yesterday at several local theaters, is more or less of the genre of Towering Inferno, Juggernaut, Jaws, Hindenburg, and so on. Something terrible is happening that is and will somebody stop it. And how are we going to get out of here? And by contrast, it makes any of them, even Hindenburg, look like cinematic poetry. Now, that's just crazy talk. Fuck off. Yeah. Drop Crazy that. Chuck. Although I will say Juggernaut is not a bad movie. I don't even remember Juggernaut. Uh, Juggernaut is one of those famous directors who made a million. It might be Richard Fleischer. Um, it's pretty good. It's there's like a bomb right. on a ship, and they okay. and there's like a bomb right. squad that has to. It's one. It's like the first like cut the red wire, no cut the yellow wire thing. Oh, all right. Uh, it assembles its characters in a familiar series of cameos. Cameos. Uh, There is the killer, or rather bits of him, hands, feet, eyeball. We only see all of him once, blurredly near the very end. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, He shoots a passing cyclist for practice before placing himself in the top tower of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Now, I want to say, that sequence terrified... I should have left the movie as soon as that happened. I just remember being 10 years old, and as soon as that fucking guy kills somebody, I'm like, the randomness and the vulnerability like just shot through my whole system, and I've been terrified of that ever since. And there's been a, you know, I recently watched Targets for the first time, actually sort of focused, and like, oh, okay, two-minute warning does kind of steal some stuff from Targets. But on the Mm -hmm. other hand, so many movies have stolen shit from two-minute warning in, in the ensuing years. Do you remember there was that, the first of the Tom Cruise, Jack Reacher movies, which is terrible, um, uh, but but it also starts with, with that exact same sequence of a, of a sniper shooting a random cyclist or jogger, and then there's this really good um, Ty West movie, have you guys seen this, called Trigger Man, where these guys no, are out in the woods it. on a camping trip, and they wound up, wind up getting like picked off by a sniper in the woods, it's pretty fucking awesome. But also a very two-minute warning vibe. Okay, go ahead. Richard Eater. All right. Uh, well, I have a question for you guys. How could someone who is a legitimate movie reviewer put this movie in the category of these other kind of disaster movies? It's just not that kind of movie. Well, that's the premise of this whole podcast that you're going to be on, right, Mike? Where, where everyone, yeah, the world the was world wrong. The world is wrong. The world got yes. it wrong. Because this guy wasn't alone. This movie got like one good review oh, out of like it was. 20. It was destroyed critically and it bombed it flopped so much so that it negatively affected uh the audience for black sunday which Mm. opened the following year right which um which is kind of like this movie with the backstory if the if this movie had a backstory it would be more like um yeah and and certainly that has overshadowed two minute warning um in the consciousness but black sunday uh tested higher than any other uh, movie in the studio's history and they were like this is going to be the next Jaws 
But when that just did okay, they said it's because people had a bad feeling left over from two-minute warning. Juggernaut is Richard Lester, not Richard Fleischer. Sorry. All right. All right. I, I'm, I'm trying to save our ombudsman a little time later on. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh there are the police, or rather there are two groups of the police. First is the good guys. Good, but ineffective, that is, led by the captain, Charlton Heston, who worries about people getting hurt and is dubious about the methods of the second police. I don't uh, find this to be true. First of all, they're not ineffective. He just, he immediately right. realizes this is a job for SWAT. He calls fucking right. Cassavetes. They have some minor disagreements, but there's no big fucking, there's no real that much tension between the two of them. They sort of have, they have these sort of almost halfway intellectual conversations about what is the right, right time to just start shooting yeah. this fucking guy. And they sort yeah. of agree on it, right? Okay. At the two right. minute warning, he's all yours. Yeah. I, this guy didn't understand the fucking movie, but nobody did Heston, at the no. time. Heston was a little afraid they'd go cowboy, right? At right. some point. And he was felt like he had to just tell him, look, we're not right. going to do that until we have to. Right. Right. And right. I, again, I, I loved that contrast of the police work in the movie. Yeah. And Heston delivers a line, which is a little bit, what he's, I wrote it down. He says to Cassavetes, we're going to wait. Don't get itchy. He may just be a drunk. <laughs> now, now, in fairness, that's a pretty crazy line. You know, because yeah. that's like, you know, there's three minutes left in the game. And it's pretty yeah. much he's not just a drunk up there at this point. But, <laughs> but that, bring, that reminded me of what I think is the best line. And I didn't get to, I didn't go back and watch the trailer, although I wish I had and I will. But there's a line that has to be in the trailer because it seems like it's written just for the trailer. And Cassavetes is the one who delivers it. And I'm trying to, I wrote it down, I'm trying to find it, but he basically says, oh, he goes, there's something about like, uh, Heston goes, do you want your guys that close to the kill zone? And and Cassavetti goes, the whole place oh, is yeah. a kill zone. <laughs> the whole place oh, is a kill zone. Too. Best line. Best line. That's got to well, be that's, in the trailer, that's, that's right? The, that summarizes the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the whole place is a kill zone. Which it becomes. Yeah. Uh, so the second police in overalls and looking like homicidal plumbers. Oh, <laughs> are a tactical commando group. They are mean, violent, and messy. Not at all. They're not messy at all. And they're not mean, and they're not particularly violent. I mean, they're sharp. They're precise. Yeah. They're precise. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the most interesting thing about the SWAT team, for me, other than how reasonable they all were and how sort of professional they were, and they just sort of had some bad luck, as as these these things tend to happen, was that they all arrived in these, is this the thing? They arrived in these green sedans. Is that like the official SWAT vehicle? That they all have these private green cars? In their street clothes. Yeah, they all arrive in their civvies, as they say, and they all have to change into their SWAT outfits, which is also a thing. I mean, it's cool to watch, but I was like, is that how it happens? They have the Everything about everything about the SWAT team I love, including their introduction in the movie, which is tear gassing some suburban dad's house that looks like he maybe he had unpaid parking tickets or something. (laughs) They're they're having an argument. He and his wife. I don't think it was like a domestic violence. Was he speaking English? Because I suddenly thought, wait, do I have? Oh, okay. Because I was like, do I have the wrong soundtrack for this movie? I I was wondering, like, where are the drug dealers and where is the human traffickers in the basement? But no, it's just (laughs) it was just his wife was upset with him about something. So they and it's this right suburban home. That's was a strange introduction. Yeah. It might have been Cassavetti's own house. Maybe they were like interlopers. Because <laughs> then the yeah, next right. scene, you see he's kicking back. He's got a barbecue going, oh, yeah. and he's watching yeah. the game in the backyard. He's, he's holding chilling. his baby. Yeah. 
Which is another we thing that s- Richard Eater sort of like pretends that we don't get to know these characters. We get to know them, but we get to know them through sort of v- the language of visual cinema. Like there isn't a right. lot of yeah. expository dialogue. You just get to know these people by watching them, which I think is great right. and sophisticated. Uh, completely. And I want to say, you know, Larry Pierce was mostly a TV director early on. He directed episodes of Batman and the Monkees, yeah. a lot of them. And then he was a TV and- di- director later in, in his career, too. Right. Yeah. But you think about the visual innovations of both those shows in terms of communicating just through graphic imagery. Yeah. I think he really, he worked those muscles that he picked up on those uh, shows very, very effectively. You make a great point, Mike McBadden. Thank you. Uh, Okay. Finally, there are the selected spectators. A quarrelsome middle-aged non-couple. Non-couple. A gambler. (laughs) who will be dropped out of a high window if Los Angeles doesn't beat Baltimore. Now, that's a scene I've seen in a million movies, some yeah. before, a lot since, but never as effectively as that. I'm terrified in that scene. I think Klugman is about to go headfirst into the ground. That's a beautifully shot. The, the thing about this movie is it's got tons of point-of-view shots, and it's two years before yeah. Halloween, two years before the steady right. cam. but they'd have some great POV shots. There's a shot of the killer driving on his way to the stadium, mm-hmm. and you see his arms, and then I'm like, where did they yeah. put the camera? Like, I'm still like, what? This is a right. pretty good POV. I also, we should uh, pay tribute to Klugman's reaction after they pull him back in, and he's weeping, and he goes, why'd you want to go and do a thing like that? <laughs> and and he delivers that line while he's weeping at the foot of the guy of the, of the Godfather. Yeah, of it's the almost like he's kissing that guy's hand, right? He is. He's yeah, ca- yeah. holding and caressing the guy's hands when he delivers that line, <laughs> sobbing. Which Who is that actor? Incredible. I love that actor who's like the 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 kingpin. You gotta look that fellow up. He's yeah. been in a million sort of canon related things, and um, yeah. Well, yes, yeah. A lot of the lesser. Uh, the uh, supporting actors are from TV cop shows. Yeah. Uh, Jack Klugman, okay. I don't know if you remember, Mike, Jack Klugman made it to our, do you remember our tough guy classification system that we I invented? I certainly do. So King ben, Pope. Ben, ben, we, we classified, we had Dukes. Yes. The entry level tough guy yeah. was a Duke. Oh my gosh. A, a, one level above that, you were a King. A level above right. that were Popes. And then there was a single spot yes. for the king of the popes. The king of popes, yes. And Klugman was a duke. Wow. He was, he was a duke, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You guys with the systems. Alan, were you part of their dirty bum system that Aaron and Mike talk about? I don't no, think so. No, that was out in L.A. We yeah, developed. that was And the, what, the hamburger? Yeah. The hamburger. Yeah, that's like a good oh, yeah, guy, yeah. Like, a, like, a, like a dad like kind a of Like a nerd guy. Yeah. that you love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the three types hamburger. of hamburgers. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, Les Nesman. Herb Tarlick and the big guy from WKRP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, we kept this running tally of the Pope, the King. Yeah, we're yeah, people, Bronson. How do you fit Bronson and Martin Balsam into a category system? It's, uh, you need, you need discernment. Yes. You need discernment. Yes. This, may, this movie made me wish that Jack Klugman had done more movies. I know he was busy doing a ton sure. of TV, but, but he's, yeah. he holds his own in this movie. I think so he's very great. entertaining. Pure joy. Uh, they could be placards. Some of them, it's obvious, will die. And the spectator is mildly sorry and mildly curious. But that's all. Curiosity is not suspense. <laughs> For suspense, some involvement is required. Through almost the whole length of the movie, we know nothing about the threat. Who he is, what he wants, 
and nothing about who is threatened or why. Which is what's so goddamn scary. (laughs) That's suspense. Because we're going to find out, and we're waiting. Actually, I think that's one of the brilliant ideas of this movie is that we we have no idea what this guy's about to do therefore anything's possible you know if we knew for sure he was after the president or some other like hybrid then think of how much of this movie you'd just be sort of rolling your eyes and twiddling your thumbs going okay he's waiting for this to happen and it hasn't happened and you know but you don't know that and and at any moment you think someone's about to bite it and I love that they they take that straight through to the end because when Heston has oh, yeah. got the guy by the collar and he's you know, sure. he's practically dead. Yeah. You know, right? so he actually says something like to him, listen, buddy, you're dying. <laughs> so <laughs> he does, he's, yeah. in, he's implying just you might as well tell me and yeah. they, they they will not deliver an answer. They they no, go with it. they go with that complete non motive, you know, or non sensibility straight Which through the end. Which is so much scarier. So all uh, right, uh it is an abstract threat. At some point, somebody yeah. is going to begin shooting, yeah. and some people will be killed, and that's all we have. Yeah. Yes, yeah, suspense. <laughs> and because it is also unspecific, the efforts of the police to catch the sniper, sniper, all their ladder climbing and maneuvering, are no more exciting than watching a group of linesmen at work up a telephone pole. Incorrect. Completely wrong. Completely wrong. I mean, wrong. fact. <laughs> that's wrong. Fact. Okay, the movie is a blank. In other words, until the end. And then suddenly, a lot of people are killed very gorily, and there is a mass stampede, and the football crowd becomes a panicked murderer's mob. And even the panic lacks emotion. It has momentum. <laughs> Lots of feet stepping on faces yeah. and viciousness. <laughs> yeah. Nothing more. Nothing more. Okay. Well, it was enough I, for me, bro. Yeah. Well, it has, it has Rhoda's husband going up the down staircase yeah, trying right. to, to save the life <laughs> Of a girl he just met. And by the yeah. way, the, in the co-ed's IMDb, they call her actress and stunts. So I think she did her own fucking hanging off of that thing. Wow. That was good. By the way. He's got Bo Bridges getting yeah. back to his family. Yes. By the way, something else we haven't mentioned. Uh, we haven't mentioned the whole Walter Pigeon pickpocket subplot. <laughs> oh, yes. Which, yeah. by the way, Pigeon is a, plays a pickpocket and Harry in your pocket like two years earlier. Why he wanted to go back to the right. pickpocket well so soon, I don't know. But his little female sidekick, do you know who she is? That That was, in real life, that was Mrs. Bo Bridges. So this movie actually ah! is interesting uh, in that it has at least two off-screen couples that are appear in this movie together but do not have scenes together. So there's Bo and Mrs. Bridges, and then there's Cassavetes and, 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 and Jenna Rollins, which, amazingly, it wasn't until watching it this week that it suddenly dawned on me, oh, yeah, they're both in this movie, and it must be because the other one of them is in this movie, and they yeah. both decided to do this movie together, but they don't act together. But it's so funny to me that through all these years of thinking on and off about this movie, it never occurred to me, hey, this is a Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes movie. And that it is. And it might be because every time David Jansen's on screen, I'm just like, how fucking drunk is he and I can't even pay attention to General Rollins like, I don't even... I, did, I, did either of you feel that uh, he was uh, channeling the future Donald Trump yes. <laughs> I mean, he had a kind of a, a feel to him that felt very much like that to me Yeah, I loved his performance I absolutely I was great. loved it Yeah, yeah. but I, I mean a little bit too much humanity and uh, for Trump yeah you know, he's, there's a moment when he's nice to Gina Rollins at the end there. And then, then of course, you know, pow, right in the ticker. 
That's right. He's Boom. A, well, gets what it. is? How is he described in the in the poster? Okay, is it, he's a confirmed so, bachelor or something. So like something that. I want. So so let's just <laughs> go through the cast as they're described on the poster, and I think let's just talk about what each of these actors mean, means to us. Right. Okay, Charlton Heston as the police captain. Now, Charlton Heston was a pope on our list. Yes, that's he correct. He was a pope, full pope, papal emeritus. But this isn't a gangster thing? Uh, no, just what? tough guys. Oh, well, just the classification? Guys. Guys. No, just we were guys. watching, I think we I'm were sorry. watching The Mechanic, and we were like, let's make a list of all our favorite action tough guys. Oh, okay. and, uh, and, Heston, and Clint Eastwood was the king of popes. But what yeah, are the, what are the yes. Charlton Heston movies that, that make him a pope? Like, what are the big Charlton Heston action movies oh, that you guys... Soylent Green, for me, Soylent Green. I mean, Green. everything, yeah. Omega Man, Planet of the Apes, Yeah, because uh, that's, that's my Cid. Heston. Oh, well, yeah. but El Cid, and then, like, you know, Ten Commandments. That's the Heston yeah. I never really cared about. I could not I could never make it through Ten Commandments, and I only watched El Cid for the first time <laughs> last year, but... but I, I watch Ten Commandments every Easter yeah, Saturday, me too. I watch ten minutes <laughs> of it, it every Easter Saturday. I watch <laughs> the whole thing straight through. It's a Wonderful Life, too. Wow, all the I way love through. it. Well, yeah, yeah, of course, it's a Wonderful Life. And what's up, uh, Doc? As we've discussed on this show. Yes, uh, I, I, Heston would be a pope, almost with without the biography. Just his right. pre, the presence he brings yes. to as soon as he steps on, in front yes. of the camera, to me is so powerful that it doesn't yes. only, almost he can take any script. It's just he's yeah. dripping with. Toughness and this old school toughness that you don't you rarely see anymore. But now, is this his last great movie role? Uh, what happens to Heston after this? I mean, later. Yeah, I mean, because you got like what do you have? The Awakening. I mean, it's a lot of shit after this. If there's anything, what's the Awakening? That's what the the mummy in Egypt. He's in that. What is he doing in that? Yeah, he's the hero of the he movie. Is? Yeah. Oh yeah. Jesus! It's real boring. Yeah, it stinks. Well, he's in um, he's in one of those James Casey like True Lies or something. He's a cameo in that, which is great. Yeah, he has the he has the eye patch. Yeah, and I remember Alan like I was in L.A. at the time, but we were talking on and you just said, "Imagine how he lost that eye." <laughs> <laughs> I I love him. I mean, he's just I do too. fantastic, yeah. and he delivers what I thought was one of the. I mean. An amazing line, which partly because it triggered a, a memory for me. He, he delivered. They're asking him. They're talking about the uh, the race of the sniper of the suspect, yeah. and okay. he says, "White, black. That doesn't take you any place with these freaks. You got no mo." <laughs> and and he, as soon as he said that, I was transported back to my brother Bocephus, yes, who delivered the following line. It, uh, to a to a beautiful woman while we were in Puerto Rico at a party. He, he had just met her, and he delivered the line, it doesn't matter if you're white from South Africa or blue from Norwegia. Your eyes are like stars. In Norwegia. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, the talk about the power of film. <laughs> That's one of the lines, Alan, that I walk around saying, and my wife says, why don't you talk to this guy? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. He's got... That from the, I believe that same. I believe that was in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yes. And these were like divorcees, that's like saucy divorcees at your table yeah, or something. We were at some party. We were mingling and with this, Whitey. Yeah, with Whitey, White, who he called Whiting. Who my friend? Yes, Franklin <laughs> called him Whiting until actually not only until but until and beyond when Whitey once put his arm around his shoulder and said, "If you call me Whiting one more time, I'm going to kill you." <laughs> Which did scare the hell out of him, but he couldn't help himself. 
Um, but he also, so one of the divorcees, as I recall, like removed her jacket and she was rather voluptuous. And your brother said, you know what I always say? Mother jugs and speed, but especially jugs. That's, that is a verbatim quote, Mike. You, you have quite the memory. That is, I say that constantly. That is spot on. Yeah, constantly. Wow, we. What a show we've got going here. This reminds me of this phrase that they use at least three times in this movie in, in short, in, in rapid succession, that I don't know that I've ever heard anywhere else, but I'm totally fascinated that this seems to be the terminology they use. They're talking about what happens to Brock Peters after he climbs up the ladder and gets whacked by the uh, by the sniper and falls down and gets petted by his dog. They say he got butt-stroked. <laughs> I know. He said it over and over, over and again. over again. What happened? Oh, he got butt-stroked. Oh, that guy who got butt-stroked yeah. is laying yeah, on the ground. Yeah, that guy who got butt-stroked. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, butt-stroked. That, 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 that's, so. that's like an SCTV <laughs> moment right there. Yeah. All right, so we got John Cassavetes as the SWAT team leader. Uh-huh. Love him anytime. This might be my, but honestly, <laughs> I mean, and I've seen this like four times now. Yeah. This might be my favorite, just personal favorite. I know it's not his best screen performance. but right, no, just, I'm with you. I'm, I'm going to go with you. This is now my favorite John Cassavetes movie. Yeah. yeah it's the one I love the most. Yeah. All right, the great Martin Balsam as the stadium manager. So, Balsam, fantastic. Uh you know, my personal connection is that uh, you remember my friend Peter Landau, Alan. Of course, I had uh, a. I was just communicating with him weeks ago. Oh, on oh, really? You guys still yes. talk? Look at you, wow, oh, man. How about out. that? No, we don't wow. still talk. It was a very strange, random kind of thing, but we had a beautiful exchange on uh, yes. LinkedIn. So, so you know, Landau's mother, Renee Landau, was a Broadway starlet. She was an actress, and uh, she is, was and is remains incredibly beautiful. But uh, for like the last 20 years of his his uh, life, Martin Landau was her boyfriend. They were romantic partners. They never got married. So Marty Landau would be like in Peter's house with like, you know, us like passed out and vomiting and dildos everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and, and like the insane women we would have around us at that point. And he would just be like, yeah, that's Peter. That's, wait, 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 wait. You're saying Martin Landau? I'm sorry, Martin Balsam. Okay, okay. Martin Balsam. I, I got it wrong. Balsam, 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 Balsam. Yeah, it blew my mind there for a second. But I'm you, sorry but, about that. But Martin Balsam was hanging out in the house while you guys were Well, we were just collapsed. perpetually like right. that. Yeah. So when his mother would come by, and they were, you know, they were like very liberal New York City right. theater people. Right. So like, this is what the punk kids did that they raised. And uh, no, and, and we always, we on Peter's Refrigerator, there was a hilarious photo of marty balsam holding a dildo and like what the fuck is this like at the dinner table like just looking quizzical at it i i he delivers he's involved in one of the best exchanges of dialogue in the movie for me which is I, you know I, i'm sure you're not supposed to receive it as abbott and costello but i did receive it <laughs> as abbott and costello as it's when he does. has the it's when he has the first confrontation with the groundskeeper balsam says do you know there's a man up there right now with a gun? And the groundskeeper says, how the hell did he get up there? And Balsam says, that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, who's on first? Right. Uh, well, and speaking of humane and humanity, 
Balsam spends the rest of that movie feeling guilty about yelling at the groundskeeper, Brock Peters, yeah. and is constantly like to Heston, hey, my guy's still up there. Can you send somebody up to help him? And it, yeah. and I finally realized on this watching that he's not actually dead. They're saying he's already, you know, the doctor wraps his head and they like, they remove the him. The dog saved yeah, him. They yeah, don't, they don't put him in a body bag. And that was another, I'll have to call this, that was another un, unbelievable quality. Because my son, Zach, just got uh, training to be an EMT. And right. he, he sees the fall and, you know, the guy's brains are splattered and they're being held together by a white bandage for the entire right. movie. Right. And, and Balsam is Balsam's begging Heston, let me send him a doctor. Well, he's a little bit beyond a doctor. <laughs> Uh, so then we have, uh, okay, the great Jack Klugman as the heavy better. <laughs> and Klugman, we've already said, I mean, there's there's more than can possibly be said, and we've already said it. Uh, Bo Bridges as the father, which is weird because there's a priest in the movie too, but he's the father. Yeah, Bo Bridges, he's kind of, you know... I th- when I th- when I look at Bo Bridges, of course, I think of Jeff Bridges, and I think, oh, Jeff right. Bridges, you know, he got the right combination of the DNA, and he's so much better right. looking. Than- but Bo Bridges isn't terrible looking. He's just got those crazy eyebrows. The eyebrows. Um, that was a, a note that I wrote was, they had eyebrows then. Yeah. Just about the whole cast. Y- yes. <laughs> yeah. But if I had to, you know, for some reason, every time I start thinking about the Bridges brothers, I then start thinking about Randy Quaid and Dennis Quaid. And I think right. that Bo Bridges certainly avoided the, the, the fate of Randy Quaid. Like, he was never as, like, uh, oh, no, as no, no. goofy and fucked up and, of course, mentally ill yeah. as, as right. Randy Quaid. But on the other hand, then I, then I started arguing with myself and saying, well, yeah, that's true, but also Randy Quaid actually has some legit great performances. Whereas, great. Whereas Bo Bridges, I don't know, has he ever really been great in a movie? I can't. No. I mean, he's he's good. That's a, that's a, that's a rock-solid guy yeah. to go to. But, but I mean, no. it's hard to get any better than Randy Quaid in, in, the, in the last uh, detail. Last detail. Yeah. Like, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just Bo Bridges, one of my all-time favorite family guy jokes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brian the dog... Uh, says to them, you you guys actually know someone who's been in the Peace Corps. And Peter goes, Bo Bridges. Is it Bo Bridges? He goes, do we know Bo Bridges? Kills me. All right. You know who Bo Bridges could be? He could be like the missing Gallagher brother, like Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher from Oasis. Yeah, sure. He's got yeah. those Gallagher eyebrows, or at least yes, those, the, the Noel Gallagher eyebrows. And of course, so, Liam uh, is like the, the, the handsome Jeff Bridges right. element to that. Okay. David Jansen as Steve, oh, just as the perpetual bachelor. Oh, the perpetual bachelor. That's him, right? Yes. Yeah. Jansen's great. And uh, my other favorite Jansen role is Dondi. You guys ever see that movie? Oh, my God. No. The and, 50s yeah, uh, yeah. adaptation of the comic yeah. strip, Dondi. And he plays yeah. Dondi? No. <laughs> that would be great. No, no. He's like the uh, U.S. serviceman who adopts Dondi. Oh, okay. Over in Italy. When they're in Italy during the war. Who, with Patty Page, the singing rage. Which which TV detective was David Jansen? Mannix? No, no. Well, he was the fugitive. He was the fugitive. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he was a detective in the seventies yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he it? had a hit what show. What the hell was the name of his detective? It was. I, I used to I watch know. it. You got to look it up. He delivers a great line in the movie with with that involves that drunk uh, often yeah. want, want another drink baby and he says something like go ahead and have it but make sure his hair doesn't fall into it. <laughs> What's the guy's hair? That is, is a great in danger. danger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
We should talk about Chuck's toupee. It's not his best. It's not Heston's best toupee. Oh. And then apparently in the TV version, he's wearing a different color toupee for the. Oh, did uh, they bring? Him, did they scenes. bring some of the original cast back for the TV footage? Just him. Oh, okay. Just him. He shot three scenes. Yeah. So then we have uh, Gina Rollins as the mistress, and she looks very much like a woman of the seventies. That that was like what a lot of adult ladies looked like. David Jansen was. Are you ready for it? Yes, please. Harry O. Harry O. Oh. Yes, Harry O. You guys remember Banachek? Oh yeah, with uh, <laughs> with uh, George Papard. Yeah. Do you remember what he did? He was an insurance investigator. <laughs> yeah. So he'd be like, "This vase is not worth three thousand dollars." <laughs> well, what was Mannix? Mannix was also some obscure kind of. Uh, he wasn't detective uh, of some just kind. a detective. Oh, maybe, maybe he was. I don't, I don't remember. I'll tell you another weird thing. When I was like four or five, this is a very early memory of mine. Uh, I was with some neighbors watching Barnaby Jones, and uh, I said, Barnaby Jones is a cop or something like that. And they said, no, no, he's a detective. But I thought they said he's the president. <laughs> and that really winked me out. For a little bit, I thought Barnaby Jones was supposed to be the president. Preferable to the current situation. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Walter Pigeon as the pickpocket. <laughs> and on the poster, he's just known as the pickpocket. Uh, it was his uh, penultimate film. His last film was The Great Sextet, one of my all-time favorites. Does he take uh, a fall in this movie when he gets shot? Oh, he gets he gets uh, lit up, man. Yeah. yeah, he goes down. Yeah, he's up against the wall when he takes it. So oh, yeah. first okay. the shots the shots blast him back against the wall, and yeah. then he comes forward. Yeah. Uh, Bloody Brock mess. Peters is Paul, the gatekeeper. Yeah, the gatekeeper. I don't really think that that the was. Gatekeeper. That's weird that that's what the, he, they named him. Groundskeeper. Yeah, yeah. Groundskeeper. Marilyn Hassett as the coed. So, so this is interesting. Um, oh, her, so her her boyfriend was John Corcus was his name. Right. Oh, and here's the, the thing about John yeah. Corcus. He didn't do much, but he was on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and so was David Grow, of course, as sure. Rhoda's boyfriend. So I wonder if that's another. This movie has a bit of that feel like the Beware the Blob, where it's like Larry Hagman wandering around saying, hey, you're in this movie. Can you grab some of your other actor friends? Yeah. <laughs> like, I sort of feel like Larry Pierce cast half of this cast and then told that part of the cast to go get their friends to be the other half of the cast well what's interesting is that he did grab a bunch of people from uh the other side of the mountain from 1975 which was his previous film including right. marilyn hassett who played the ah. quadriplegic ski champion uh jill kinmont did you know that larry also made a sequel the other side of the mountain 2 i certainly do yes i have not seen either one of those movies no, i've not either oh that's we got to correct that that's a future crackpot episode <laughs> so here we go this is a big one and uh, well, this is not on the poster. We're off poster. Okay. Uh, Andy Sedaris as the TV director. So Andy Sedaris was a real life ABC sports director, but he's become much more famous for directing like Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Malibu Express, a movie you and I that you and oh I saw on Forty Second Street, Allen called Guns with Eric Estrada. God, we yes. were we were shit face drunk but yeah uh, yes <laughs> so does he um, have any connection to david and amy no it's a, he spells his name differently oh, fuck he has an i s-i-d-a-r-i-s okay. um so wait is he the guy who has that confrontation with heston about moving away from the monitors 
Yes, he is. Yes, that's okay. the real life Andy Sedaris. And and his gimmick in those movies was he filled the cast with Playboy playmates and penthouse pets. The fucking genius. Yeah, and a hell of a and director in this movie. His his direction much, yes. of the of the. I yeah. honestly, I think some of the some of the most interesting and realistic stuff is all that TV truck stuff with the overlapping totally. dialogue. It's totally very Altman esque and um, totally fascinating. Put you again in the world in the room. The, the heightened uh, reality of that, the heightened tension of it. The- right. And speaking and a- of good moments and subtle moments, when Martin Balsam gets dragged up to the TV truck at the beginning and they and they say, look, here's the guy. And they say, oh, put him on that monitor over there. And Balsam walks right up to the monitor to get a closer look. And it's yeah. sort of, you see in his eyes him registering, okay, this is a real thing. This fucking guy's really got a gun. I got to do something about it. There's no dialogue, but you read all of that information on Balsam's face. And I think it's great. Great performance, Martin Balsam. Oh, he's great. That uh, truck has another great line for me. When the, when the blimp shot for the very first time that it gets put up on the monitor, one of the more minor guys in the truck yeah. sees it and says something like, oh, maybe it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The yeah. guy with a 30-round clip and a, right. a sniper scope and a rifle up in the tower. Yeah. The only thing I, could, I, I thought at that point was like, he, that, that's somebody just hoping against hope. He's just like disassociating. He's like, no, I just, Can't be. I, my brain's not going to accept this. Right. Know? And they call the blimp something else at some point. Somebody says like the rubber rocket or something. He's like, get us another oh, shot yeah, from the yeah, rubber yeah, rocket. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. That's thing. Oh, in terms of what things are called too, by the way, this is uh, championship day. Oh, good. For championship 10. Yeah. <laughs> Between Baltimore and Los Angeles. You know, it's yeah. interesting because in the book, as I read some of today, they do call it the Super Bowl. And I don't know. I don't know why they weren't allowed to just say Super Bowl in the in, in uh, because they sent the script to the NFL and they said fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> what do they What do they do about that in Black Sunday? You know, I don't know. We're gonna have to do an episode on that, and we'll research that. So I don't remember. I do think they said Super Bowl. Now here's I, my I question remember. about that's related to that. Well, you know, uh, what's his name? Howard Cosell and. Uh, Gif, Gif, Frank Gifford. They have cameos yeah. in this, but they're only on the yeah. monitor. Do you think that they w- recorded that for this, or they just stole footage of them and paid them for it or something? No, I think that was, they just shot them. I think that was for the Well, it's movie. kind of amazing yeah. that they never bother to, like, cut to them, like, sort of live on set, that you only ever see them in the monitor. No, they, they, they just got them for 10 minutes, probably. I think it must have been because they, they were talking about football players' names, who I'm guessing were made-up names. Were made-up, including I, I, Lloyd Braun. Lloyd Braun. <laughs> Who is uh, the Seinfeld, course, uh, right? Lloyd Braun, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, so that stuck out. What's so uh, then, John Cusack's uh, name and say anything? That's Lloyd Dobler. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Lloyd Dobler's from Dumb and Dumber. No, I thought Lloyd Braun was in Lloyd Braun. I thought was Seinfeld. I Could thought be both. no. I think it's say anything. Hang on. Find out, please. Okay. Uh, so then we have. Uh, Susan Bacalini. I finally learned how to pronounce her name. I always said Bacalini. Lloyd Braun is Seinfeld. Okay. And then he's Lloyd. I thought. In, you don't uh, think it's Saint Dobler? Anything. It might be Dobler. Yeah. Lloyd Dobler. Must be. All right. What was the actress you were talking about? Susan Bacalini. It is Lloyd from, Dobler in uh, Say Anything. In, in Say Anything. Okay. Uh, Susan Bacalini. Who's she? Uh, is. She is the pretty blonde woman in Crowd. So she's the uh, chesty lady that they they show, oh. uh, they 
close out the camera on her. Um, and she, of course, was uh, most famous as the skinny dipper from the opening scenes of Jaws. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Which she recreated in 1941. Was she in something else that we saw recently? I thought I just, maybe it was this. I ran across her name. I don't, yeah, I don't think so. Um, according to an article in Saga Magazine, which I will now be scouring uh, eBay for, they shot footage of her flashing the crowd. And her character was a call girl named Miss Pear Tits. P-E-A-O-R. Miss Pear Tits. And that's not up somewhere on Mr. No. Skin? You don't have that footage already cataloged? Uh, I checked, and it's not there yet. Um, so that's why we're going to find the uh, Saga magazine, and we'll get those pictures up on Mr. Skin. Um, now, let's get to Warren Miller as the sniper. So, first off, he's not Warren Miller, the director of those ski documentaries. That would be great if it was, though. That used to play weirdly play theaters, like, into the 90s. No, no it still happens. Really? Well, I don't know I about mean, Like, Warren they started Miller. in, like, the 40s? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, Warren Miller's Snow Express. Yeah. They still have these, like, traveling festivals that are, like, one-night festivals that come to your town, and they play a couple yeah. ski movies and, well, you know, snowboarding movies, and then you go on your way. It's like the yeah. Bramp Film Festival or some shit like that, and it's like comes to <laughs> Madison, and people like pack like a large old movie palace to see this shit. It's very weird, man. Yeah, um, and it's it's ironic that it's not him because he was his previous uh, movie had been Larry Pierce's ski movie, The Other Side of the Mountain. Huh. And before that, his biggest uh, role had been as the prison doctor in Caged Heat, Jonathan Demme's Women in Prison movie. I want to say the creepiest thing about the character of the killer is that he wears these hush puppies, which just seems like such a weird and, like, creepy choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, you make a point. I definitely noticed his shoes, and I thought they looked good. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah, they're great. Yeah. 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 I noticed his hands. There was a lot of lot of attention to his hands. I almost had an Adams Family thing feel at right. some point. He's drumming his fingers on the hotel desk. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just tightening them up on the steering wheel when they drive. and He does a very fetishistic, like, putting together of his rifle, which he's smuggled in right. in, like, various yep. pockets of his... A very, very handy coat that he has that has a million, like, different long yes. pockets. It's like one of those safari jackets that right. were popular in the 70s. Right. Um, but the thing about it, and his gun, he's like polishing. Every time he puts a piece in, he grabs his yeah. cloth, and he's. But then he grabs the magazine, and it's all fucked up. The paint is peeling off of it, and I don't yeah. know what that's about. Like, do you like clean your gun, but you don't make sure your magazine is in good shape? Oh, yeah. You guys you are take gun what you owners. Can get. I don't know. I don't that's know. right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the gun. Uh, fetishism and uh, his expertise suggests a military background perhaps but we don't know so i have to say every shot through the crosshairs is terrifying yeah it stops your heart every time yeah and and every time he points that gun and that shot i mean talk about a trope i mean that had became the ultimate and still is the ultimate video game point of view sure um you know and I'm, i'm assuming there were no video games you know, that could predate it in any way, in any capacity. So this this was it, and they look exactly like that. Yeah. There was the Death Race 2000 game. You remember that, where you drove the car around, chased people, and hit them, they turned into little graves? Um, all right, so Merv Griffin, of course, sings the national anthem. <laughs> Another cameo that had me job. wondering, did they hire Merv Griffin for this movie or just bought some footage? I think they, they have to hire him. I mean, I think, that, I think it's just easier to... 
just pay him to be there and give him a nice meal and a little towel boy for after the show. And um, interesting touch, uh, the sniper, he listens to a transistor radio, which Charles Whitman did in the uh, real-life incident in 1966 at the University of Texas Tower. And what's, that was turned into a TV movie, which I think yes, was around the same movie. time as this. But 75, yeah. The Deadly Tower with Kurt Russell as Charles Whitman. Yeah, I can never get myself to watch that because I think the fact that it's real life like bothers me too much. It's definitely depressing. Yeah, it's definitely a bummer for sure. So, uh, let's see. Notes on Larry Pierce. He directed the TNT, sh- the big TNT show, which is a great 60s concert movie that has uh, The Birds, The Love and Spoonful, Bo Diddley, Donovan, Joan Baez, The Seeds, The Ronettes, and Ike and Tina Turner. And how about this? Members of the audience include Frank Zappa, Phil Spector, and Ron- teenage Ron and Russell Mayo from Sparks are in the crowd. I watched that VHS tape at Alan McDonnell's house when I was babysitting his dog, Mugger. So, uh, 1967, uh, the same, uh, a year later, he directed uh, (laughs) The Hardy Boys, The Mystery of the Chinese Junk. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? That wasn't part of the TV? It was a TV movie. It was a a failed pilot. 67. Oh, 67. Who who played the Hardy Boys in that? Uh, Tim Matheson was one of them, and somebody else was one of the was the other one. So. Yeah, I bet they were. Uh, then, of course, the incident seventy one. Uh, in oh, that was later um, in sixty seven, the same year as the Hardy Boys, the teenage. Oh, that's a great double bill. <laughs> really, uh, goodbye Columbus in nineteen sixty nine. Um, a separate, which I, I love the book, and I barely remember the movie. Goodbye, Columbus. I know people loved it. It was a huge hit. The people were very affectionate toward it. Is that with uh, Richard Benjamin? Richard Benjamin, yeah. Um, A Separate Piece from 72. I hated that book. Never saw the movie. Mm -hmm. Ash Wednesday, 73. One of the great Elizabeth Taylor bombs of the 70s that I love. Uh, The Bell Jar, adaptation of the Sylvia Plath novel with Marilyn Hassett. Tapping back into his other side of the mountain. He is a I want to say Marilyn other side Hansen. of the mountain was a okay. blockbuster. Yeah. They said it was Universal's highest grossing picture in years and kept the studio afloat for a while. And then this film seems to have killed his his movie career, yeah. right? That was the name of that tune. Yeah, he went back to TV. That's too bad. Starting with the the Ghostbusters with uh, Larry Storch and Forrest that Tucker. That blew my the, mind. The gorilla. Yeah, the guy Tracy the gorilla. Seven episodes of that he directed. Yeah, uh, hard to hold the Rick Springfield movie. Oh wow, uh, nice. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Rick Springfield music fan, and it's not a good movie. And then uh, Wired in '89, the John Belushi story starring the Commission. Oh, that's crazy that he directed that. Oh, yeah. Now you we were, we were Commish fans. We used to watch the Commission. We oh, used to commish. crack beers and enjoy that Commission. And I was saying there was, oh, we were talking about it last time. There was an episode of the Commission where, remember, his arch enemy was Telly Savalas as the mobster, as the godfather. And they had to team up to take down a child molester in one episode. <laughs> was Telly like a recurring character on that show? Yeah, he was the bad guy. He was the wolf fat. 
like on Hawaii oh, Five O. Okay. Like he'd come on once or twice a year and blow. Okay, your mind. so those were the days where you'd have the one big bad perennial villain from season to season that keep going. Right. That these days it's like one right. per season, and then they get killed at right. the end of the season and they move on. To exactly. Right. Yeah. He's such an underrated actor. He, I mean, he, Telly? He, yeah, Telly Savala. He, he, he keeps coming up. He was on the show uh, last yeah, week. Yeah, um, one. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, last week it was you were talking about uh, Blofeld. I remember oh, yeah. The, yeah. Um, Aaron Lee was mentioning the thing about yeah. hip- hypnotizing with the chickens. Yeah. Um, and you sent us the clip. Fantastic. Yeah, I might have I said, to play well, that. That's fantastic. I, I was laughing so hard. I, I had to. I had to look it up. But Telly Savalas, it's just phenomenal. And then Kelly's Heroes, so great. Hey, yeah, Dirty Dozen. It's just the yeah the psycho. Uh, so. Last uh, round of notes is on uh, Charles Fox, the composer. All right. So I think the music is so good here. So he was a, a great guest on the uh, Gilbert Gottfried podcast a couple of years ago. So he wrote truly iconic TV theme songs, Love American Style, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Love Boat. He wrote the music. Paul Williams wrote the lyrics. And the theme from ABC Wild World of Sports. Wow. That's the thrill of victory when you have a resume like that. Uh, wow. So we'll just okay. Let's just let's just go through these titles here. I selected filmography in terms of his scores that he wrote. Just what does this film mean to you, Barbarella? Ben. <laughs> <laughs> that Barbarella means uh, 1984 at the Ritz, the old Ritz, waiting for bands to come on. They used to have a big actual video screen that they would put at the front of the stage to cover up all the bands moving their equipment around instead right. of an actual curtain they'd have a video screen they'd throw up film all kinds of film clips while the DJ would play whatever the fuck and so you'd be watching this random assortment of, of film clips while while the DJ was mixing some great tunes for you and so Barbarella would be in that mix and as I said last episode it's the only way you should ever really watch Barbarella is with the sound off and <laughs> listening to some better music Alan thoughts on Barbarella it was just Jane Fonda's breasts. Just, That's right. In the opening. Anti-gravity. Uh, just, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I, it's just funny what you said about the sound off. When I was uh, writing uh, some stuff uh, with Mike, I did uh, airplane movie reviews, which I would watch so without the, would yes. watch them without the sound and would review, them, review the movie with no sound. Was, were you watching were like somebody else, back of somebody else's seat or whatever? No, or? this was so long ago. It was the drop-downs down the center of the aisle. Oh, but you didn't so bring didn't, headphones? and I didn't bring headphones. I didn't want to pay, so I watched them without that. Mr. Baseball I reviewed with Tom Selleck. Once the greatest a, was Once Around. Once Around with the And then we Richard watched Dreyfuss. it with the sound off. We rented it and watched it that way. It was yeah. better without the sound. Is that yeah. that My Life as a Dog director, Lassa Halstrom, who did yes, that? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Danny Aiello and Dreyfus is like this lovable eccentric. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so. No, I saw it. All right. I, I remember. Once around. Yeah. The Green Slime. I don't think I've, I've ever seen, seen the Green I, Slime. I've definitely I, seen it. I, I, I like seen it. it. The theme song is really what's memorable. It's this great rock and roll theme song that just goes, it's Green Slime. Uh, Star, Star Spangled Girl with Sandy Duncan from 71. Nice. <laughs> Definitely saw it on TV. Okay. The Laughing Policeman with Walter Matthau from 1973. Yeah. I've never seen it. I've seen it. My, my father loved it. Yeah, it's good. You know, it's one of the, it's, it, it's got so much atmosphere. It doesn't matter that the plot is yeah, shit and there's right. nothing going on, but it's just fun. And Walter Matthau. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
And do you remember Walter Matthau? Howard Stern once, my favorite thing was when his old in-laws would come and stay with him and they would make him insane. And he was watching a movie and they called Walter Matthau, (laughs) Walter Matthau. And he lost his mind. (laughs) So, uh, okay, here's a big one. Bug from 1975. Oh, Bradford Dillman, baby. That was a big one. I watched on TV in the summertime and loved it. That was a movie that I remember seeing commercials for on TV and being so terrified I couldn't even imagine going to the movie theater to see it. <laughs> it was like, it was wasn't, the there, bugs, they wasn't sh- there like a bu- one of the bugs was in somebody's hair or something? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they shot fire out of their asses, as yeah. I recall. Did they spell words? Too? Yes. I remember like just loving it. Yeah. Uh, and Bradford Dillman's locked himself up in some like cabin. You know, studying these fucking things, and he goes out of his goddamn mind, and it's great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox. Is that is George the, Siegel in that? And Goldie Hawn. Right. Yeah. I saw. I can't remember. Goddamn thing. I about saw it on it. TV. Don't remember it. Yeah. One on one with Robbie Benson. Ah, uh, yes. Love that movie. Yeah. Very good movie. I don't, okay. One of the best. Foul play. Oh. So Charles Fox actually wrote "Ready to Take a Chance Again" with uh, Barry. Manilow. Oh, they wrote it together. Wow! And uh, and it was nominated for an Oscar. Yes, that's the best. I think that's the best '70s movie romantic song. I would agree. Uh, the Last Married Couple in America with George Siegel and Natalie Wood. I saw it recently and loved it. Huh? I don't think I've ever seen it. You know what I watched recently was Fun with Dick and Jane, which is does not hold right. up at all. No, I remember not liking that as a kid. I remember liking it as a kid, but I was at that phase where you know I liked everything. I was like, oh, it's a yeah, movie. You know, if it was a movie, but I saw it on TV. I was like, Pfft. yeah. Um, Nine to Five from 1980. Saw that recently at uh, the Music Box Theater, some before last, at the Dolly Parton Film Festival, where... Uh, the winner of the Dolly Parton Lookalike Contest was a guest on this show earlier this evening, my wife, Rachel McPatton. Very nice. Is there a pictorial record of, of that? There certainly okay. is, yes. You might have to yeah. social media that thing. We will do that, yes. Uh, now, here's a movie I became obsessed with on cable, <laughs> Six Pack with Kenny Rogers. Yeah, I've never seen that. And the theme song, well, it's good because... It's way past, so 82 is way past the Bad News Bears, mm-hmm. and they're still operating like the way to have a successful kid movie is to have them say shit constantly, like say son of a bitch shit. So it's really jarring to watch these kids curse up a store. But it has one of my all-time, I'm going to say one of my favorite songs, which is the theme song, Love Will Turn Us, Turn You Around. Hmm. I don't know it. Rogers. I don't know it. Oh, you definitely, it goes... Love will turn you around. It will turn you around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that is a good song. Once in a na-na-na-na-na-na. Okay. Uh, Strange Brew, speaking of SCTV. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is actually, you know what the plot of Strange Brew actually is? What is it? It's um, Hamlet. Oh, now that you mention it. I think, don't they? isn't it Elsinore Brewery that they that they? Yes, it is, at? in fact, yeah, go. yeah. Uh, European Vacation, a stinker. Do you hear I'm my dog? F- he's, he's, he's baying. Oh, come on in, Rem. He, 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 what did you? What was the movie you mentioned? It was definitely Dog of the Week. European yeah, Vacation. There you go. He started howling at that. Oh, that's right. Dog of the Week. Yeah. Dog of the Week. There we go. Yeah. Do you have a dog, Alan? No, I do not. Yeah. 
You uh, had a dog as a kid. Sports. Well, yeah, sport was uh, what a major player in my life. Sport was, absolutely, yeah. Okay, and you had Max. A Max after sport, yeah. Max was yes. the pit bull. The but, pit uh, bull. But sport. And I saw Franklin take a Frisbee, put it in Max's mouth, put the other end of the Frisbee in his mouth, and lift up Max. Yes, that would have been an average weekend at the Claudine household. <laughs> I, I also, he once fed Max a, he once fed Max a rake. And Max, Max pretty much ate the rake. Um, he had a he had a habit. He, he he used to give Sport beer. Sport was a ninety five pound German Shepherd. Good he would Lord. he would give him whatever beer he was having. So you know he was just being right. fair. He was sharing. Yes, he was sharing. Yes. He once tried to share Jack Daniels with Sport, but uh, Sport was smart no, no, smart no. enough to uh, one whiff. Yeah, yeah, he avoided the Jack Daniels. We even just. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Ben. You would might have been in the house to see this, Mike. You would not have been, but my dad did take a picture of Sport and blow it up into a full size poster, as as big as a movie theater, uh, you know, poster would be, and that hung in in the most prestigious spot of the living room <laughs> over, over the couch. There wasn't a picture of a family member anywhere in the house, but there was this magnificent. No, it was Sport. Am I am I misremembering? Did Sport once jump off the roof of your house, like the? He second? did. Okay. Yes, Sport. Uh, he got very excited by the postal worker, and uh, <laughs> he just went right off. That yeah. happened to me at another place, at a place I lived when I lived on Seventh Avenue and Park Slope. There was a crazy dog that lived in the apartment above us, and he jumped off of the out of the second floor window of that department and landed on some woman who was sitting on the stoop of the building that I lived in. It was. Uh, it's quite a scene. Jeepers. Yeah. So finally, Charles Fox did the score for <laughs> Repossessed, oh, the uh, Exorcist parody with uh, Leslie Nielsen and Linda Blair. Uh, He's done a lot more than that, but these I thought were relevant to our interests. Yeah. And h- hundreds and hundreds of episodes of music for television. Yes, yes. As a composer. Uh, incredibly prolific composer, yes. So I think we're... Uh, we're at the two-minute warning mark. Okay, well, well, as all we're at the two-minute well, warning mark. Then you mark, can't get in the theater. If there's stuff... <laughs> That's right. I, there's yeah. one thing. I, I talked about that one shot in the movie that I thought was great with Bo Bridges and the uh, running into the riot. And I think that... Yeah. I think all of those scenes with the with the riot, with the mass exodus are great. Uh, like I believe every moment of that, all those people pouring down the stairs and falling over the sides and all that shit. The other image that you know isn't as spectacular as far as like what they had to do to get it to happen but i just think is amazing and like not like i don't remember seeing anything like this in any other movie when he uh when the killer shoots the swat guy and then the swat guy there's like they cut back to it maybe 10 times where he's dead hanging upside down in a twisted thing from the rope that is so disturbing and they yeah. show it so much; it's just amazing to me. That that's that's my second favorite, just sort of cinematic. Show. The only thing I can think of is Vince Van Patten at the end of uh, Class of 1984. <laughs> is that happening? He's hanging above the. Well, he's above the uh, school play that's going on with the whole packed auditorium, and he's dead. And, well, he reaches out to Mr. Norris, to Perry King, and he's like, "Mr. Norris, help me! I'm just a kid." Because he's like up in like the, you know, the catwalk, right? And uh, and what's Mister? Yeah, Mister Mister Norris tries to help him, and then Vince uh, like stabs, slashes him with a knife. Mm. So he lets him go, and on the way down, yeah, he gets uh, 
he gets his neck all caught up in the rope works and just dangles over the school play. Somebody yeah. needs to do a supercut of that trope of how many times the villain is yeah. could be helped up by the hero at the end of the movie and instead just tries to attack him and then gets dropped. Yeah. Happens a lot. The, the big visual for me was is not any one particular scene, but the just the love this director has for this Los Angeles Coliseum is just mm. I mean there from the apps from the literally the opening shot yes. I and mean, that's the yeah. the whole first 60 seconds is just pure love of this yeah. place and then everything from stairwells and yeah. um, outdoor shots it's just constant it, I, I, you're right and it's very emotional at the end where you have Marty Balsam just looking at the empty stadium and weeping yeah is that stadium still in business or do they tear it down and do something else you know, know, that's a good question. It's probably a new version of that stadium. That's it it was pretty big. Was I would love it to take hosted a the Olympics morning tour uh, if they had that in place. You know the thing. You know the thing that really stands out about this movie is that it seems to be like pre-luxury box. Like the mayor, oh, yeah. the governor, mm. the president. Yeah. At some point, it yeah. seems like there's seats being saved for the president, but they're all just like right, right out in they're the just opening. in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're not even good seats. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. But not even front row. You know, row. something else we haven't really pointed out is that this is also pre-mass shootings. Right. As like a regular occurrence. Right. So there's that whole fucking freak out. That's right. And then as we've observed, like any movie with a big crowd now in the age of uh, COVID right. is a horror movie. Yeah. And then I had the I had the horrific thought, you know, just the bummer that, well, the mass shootings have stopped because of COVID. Oh, it's <laughs> true. Like that's what it took. Right. Yeah. Sure, they can't get any. They can't get enough people together to get a good mass shooting going yeah. these days. Oh, and the other thing about the other thing that made me laugh. Well, two things. First of all, so there's no luxury booth, but there is the press booth. And and towards the end, one of those TV announcers, I don't know who it's supposed to be, gets gets obliterated by by the sniper. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? Like, yeah. But the, also, I like the scene where we briefly go to the president of the United States perspective and he's in the back of the limo yes. and they say, hey, you, we can't take you to the game anymore. He goes, ah, shit. <laughs> ah, shit. That was the best. Yeah. Ah, shit. Yeah, so that's a very yeah. modern president. Uh, yeah, did. and then his whole motorcade just takes the exit and yeah. just they avoid right. the stadium. Yeah. What a relief. What a relief. Mr. Broadman. Pure joy. Absolutely. Pure joy. So thank thank you to both of you for inviting me on. We'll have to have on. you back for something else when we think of I, it. I'd love to, but thank you. This was an absolute pleasure for me. And Mike, I'm so thrilled that you got to see this movie and appreciated it. I love it, yeah. And uh, I should plug uh, my movie. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> it's not my movie. Uh, Skin, A Complete History of... Uh, just I, I always say it wrong. Too. Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies. It's available now to rent or buy from Amazon, iTunes, or any place you get your streaming films these days. Hey, and I've seen nothing but rave reviews except today yeah. on social media. So that I don't, we can cut this out if you don't want to talk about this. No, what, no, no, but what is it? No, no, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> I, for some reason, I'm a member of this stupid fucking New Yorker movie club on Facebook, Richard Brody. Right. So Richard Brody from The New Yorker. Uh, posted on that in that Facebook group today <laughs> saying what not to stream. <laughs> and he says, uh. <laughs> and uh, it's well, no, no, we'll keep this in because okay. that's a fucking rave review. If ever there was a plug, thank you. Yeah, Dick. wait a second. Let me see if I can pull uh, it up. For you, make to make that movie, Mike, to do that, I'd say, God bless you, Mike McPadden. Thank you. And God thank bless you. us, everybody. Yeah. 
I am uh, associate producer. I'm also on camera. Oh my god, have you seen Richard Brody these days? I've not. I've never seen him. Yeah, he's got a. He better hope I don't see him now. He's got like a ZZ Top beard. He says, uh, "What not to stream?" Um, despite some very good but far too brief interviews, Skin. With me. Skin, a history of nudity in the movies, is smarmy and repellent. <laughs> it could be a teaser for Mr. Skin's site. Yeah, that's what it is, uh, asshole. Yeah. Uh, better off reading this discussion from the New York Times from 2000, organized by, I don't know, then I'd have to click on it. to. But he does, he posts some link to some New York Times discussion of nudity in the movies from 2000. Which you oh, probably I'm sure that's a real page turner. Scintillating. Yeah. yeah. Scintillating. <laughs> so there you go. That's Richard motherfucking Brody. So. Fuck him. All right. This was magnificent. He's as wrong about skin as Richard Eater was about two-minute warning. Very much. That's right. I'm glad we we, so. we, 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 we shown a spotlight on that cockroach. <laughs> He's going to run <laughs> off into the dark of his stupid ZZ Top beard. That's right. Fuck the man. All right. Fuck you, Bill de Blasio, and fuck you, Richard Brody. Exactly. Forever. And Dick Eater, wherever you are, in hell. Well, it's your heart.